Okay, so it's a great pleasure tonight to introduce Burton Smith. Uh, Burton has had a uh, long and checkered career, but uh, the way to think about it is he's one of the very most one of the very most creative computer architects in the world for the past 30 years or so. Uh, I, I'm not up on your early history. He was at the University of Colorado for a while. Yep. At a company called uh, Denelcore. I actually didn't found it. They were an analog computer company. I decided to try to help learn how to. Uh, do digital computing. Got it. So Janelle Core was an acronym for Denver Electric Company. Um, <laughs> so Burton built a machine called the Janelle Core high performance machine. And then he spent uh, a few years in Washington, D.C. doodling on napkins for uh, agencies whose initials we don't speak. And uh, then moved out to Seattle to uh, found a company with DARPA sponsorship, Terra Computer, which made a really interesting high performance machine. Terra eventually purchased Cray. That's how bizarre things go. So Burton was chief scientist of Cray for quite a period of time. And about two years ago or so, a one, one year actually, ago, yeah. wound up like everybody else at Microsoft. I'm <laughs> 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 kind of curious that the, the vast majority of people giving guests talking okay. are currently at Microsoft, but they're here to talk about something they did before they went to Microsoft, right? So Butler Lightning's at Microsoft talking about Xerox. Gordon Bell's at Microsoft. We'll be talking about DEC. Uh, Ray Ozzie in a couple of weeks is at Microsoft. We'll be talking about collaboration software. Burton's at Microsoft. We'll be talking about high-performance computing. The great news is, you know, everybody's kind of moving to Seattle. Anyway, Burton, thanks for being here. Tonight. You're very welcome. And thanks for all you... Now, all you people out there, uh, both here and, and out in... Uh, in Radio Land or uh, California or whatever, uh, uh, if you have any any uh, any sort of comment or question or whatever, please uh, pipe up. We have plenty of time, and uh, there's lots of possibilities of things to talk about in this space. So if any of you in the back row here at at the University of Washington hear some noise in the speakers from somebody at a remote site that I don't hear, please wave and say, "Hey, the Berkeley guys are saying something," or the Okay? Yep. All right. So without further ado, let's get into this topic. Um, I called it a history of supercomputing because supercomputing is sort of the traditional name for this subject. Uh, it, it's been called HPC lately because I don't know why. Uh, supercomputing is a sort of a 50s sound to it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, a lot of us in the field think that's the right name for it. And uh, so that's why I called it that. So this is sort of what I want to talk about. I want to. Uh, bore you first with a few definitions, um, which uh, I don't expect you to remember, but at least I will have showed them to you. Uh, and then I want to sort of run you through architecture for a lot of years and visit some things along the way, uh, like a little geopolitics here and there, something about you know uh, what kind of uh, software was available. Mainly, though, I thought this was, would be interesting for you because it's a very rich texture of a lot of ideas that have been tried, and many of which were pretty successful. Uh, and, and it's just a tremendous <coughs> diversity of stuff. Uh, and a lot of it not much like anything we call a computer today. Uh, then again, we're inventing things today that aren't much like anything we've seen before, too. So uh, anybody who says there's nothing new in architecture has got it slightly wrong. There's just new combinations of old things, but it's new stuff for sure. So anyway, on to the definitions a little bit. Um, so what is a supercomputer? Well, 
a bunch of definitions. At one point, it was any computer that cost $10 million is a supercomputer. Uh, that turns out to be not nearly enough money today. Uh, a better definition is, I think due to Bill Busby, which is who's a, another character out of the past, used to be at Los Alamos, who says it's sort of the world's fastest computer at any given instant. So if you have the world's fastest computer for a week or a year or something, then it's a supercomputer at that time. And certainly, almost all the machines I'll talk about up front are, are in that class. I'll diverge a little bit into some things that were sort of near supercomputers or wannabe supercomputers or, you know, if you really bought a big one, it would be the fastest, but nobody did, so it's not. Things like that. Especially some of my own handiwork is in that latter category. Um, there are various flavors of these machines. Um, there's in particular a, a sort of a taxonomy due to a guy named Mike Flynn at Stanford uh, that has been used a great deal. And, and, and two of the, the kinds of machines he talked about are called SIMD and MIMD, which stand for single instruction stream, multiple data stream, or multiple instruction stream, multiple data stream architecture. And what these are are two different ways of generating lots of concurrent operations at the same time. The first, SIMD as it's pronounced, is you do one instruction at a time, but the instruction uh, causes a whole lot of operations to occur one way or the other. So one instruction, but maybe a thousand adds or a thousand multiplies or something like that. Not branches, not anything that causes control flow to change, just Arithmetic, memory reference, things like that. Loads and stores and, and, and adds and multiplies and stuff. Uh, classically, they all have to be the same operation. We'll diverge from that at a point down here, but, but that's basically the idea. So they're all adds. You can't do 31 adds and 16 multiplies or anything like that. They all have to be the same stuff. Mindy is sort of another sort of thing where really what you have is a whole bunch of computers that talk to each other. Each computer decodes its own instructions and does its own arithmetic, and they communicate somehow to solve a single problem. That's a MIMD machine. So it really is just lots of processors, lots of memory, uh, and some way of communicating among them. Now, how you communicate among them is the subject of the next two bullets. Shared memory refers to MIMD computation. You can also talk about shared memory or distributed memory SIMD, but that's less interesting. Uh, shared memory MIMD co computation means that there's a single memory. Uh, it doesn't have to be one hot glowing coal of a box. It can be sort of spread out over space, but it's, a, it's viewed as a single memory by all the processors. So every processor can access memory without help from any other processor, just directly like do load or store or whatever, right? Uh, and there's two sub-flavors of that uh, called UMA and NUMA. And UMA stands for Uniform Memory Access, and it means that all the processors more or less have the same quality of access, the same speed of access, whatever that means, uh, to any place in the memory. It's a bit of an abstraction. You don't always achieve that. Uh, it's uh, It's... It's, it's the definition, anyway. You're not saying anything about the coherence model or anything like that? No, nothing about, nothing about uh, in, in fact, coherence I just as soon ignore for this talk. Uh, 
you know, th th there are things in the world called caches, and sometimes, and caches mean you're making copies of things, and making copies of things generates a problem when the copy doesn't match the original anymore, or there's multiple copies of different provenance, or whatever, and that's a whole zoo of a problem. Uh, and one way to implement shared memory is with caches, and I'll, I will say something about that. But, uh, but that's somewhat, uh, somewhat a, a an architectural detail at, at this altitude. So uh, I come back to your yeah. definition again. So I, there are machines that are ridiculously idiosyncratic. They're sort of idiot and can only do one thing. Yes, that's true too. Do you consider those supercomputers, or do you have some general purpose religion that you're applying here? Uh, I guess there's a, a somewhat general purpose religion here. I'd like the machine to be Turing complete at least. I'd like it to be able to do, you know, anything that one might expect a Turing machine to do with some programming effort or other. Uh, but some of these machines I'll talk about are, were somewhat specialized. People were interested in high-performance computing typically to solve a problem. And sometimes they just needed to solve the problem and didn't really care about whether they could do a whole lot of other things with the machine. Uh, on the other hand, uh, none of these uh, machines I'll be talking about are arguably quite as specialized as a, an NVIDIA or an ATI GPU is today, for example. They're somewhat, or at least... Yesterday, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's that kind of, of uh, that kind of a little above that in generality, but not necessarily as general as a as a uh, as, as a microprocessor of, of today. So, so UMA is is this uniform access. NUMA is, of course, non-uniform memory access. And what it means is that how how the quality of access to memory is determined by where the memory is. And classically, there's some memory that's near the processor that wants to get you know, at memory. And other memory, all the rest of the memory, is all accessible, but it's harder to get to. It costs you more, in some sense of the word costs you more, to get to that. Cost comes in two flavors, actually, at least. Latency and bandwidth. And the bandwidth can be worse, less, and the latency can be higher. Uh, and... Uh, that's kind of the reasons for non-uniformity. Yeah. Right. This 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 uh, placement is not cache. I'm not talking about cache. It can be due to cache, or it can be something else. Uh, all sorts of things have been done. If it's there's some kinds of of ways of caching, a particular thing I'll talk about later called comma, where a place is a dynamic thing. It isn't. It, it's 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 where it's where the cache line happens to be right now. And if you're near where the cache line happens to be right now, you win. And if not, it's somewhere else and you lose. And so it's a fairly uh, complicated concept. And I think people would agree that a coma architecture is NUMA in a sense. Uh, but uh, but not, it's, it's not a physical place. It's a virtual place at that point. So it's, it's a fairly complicated subject. But this is just sort of the, you know, this is the 10,000-foot view. So uh, we can look at the ramifications as we go. Distributed memory is the opposite of shared memory. What it says is that there is not a single memory. There are a bunch of memories, and typically every processor has its own and needs something else to get at memories that aren't its own, besides the usual memory semantics. So the classic thing that you do is you send messages. Okay? Uh, this is the way networks of computers work today. It's the way the computer that is the world works today. We all send messages out 
through the internet to other computers and they send messages back and that's the way everything is done, right? So in some sense, the world, or let's say the computers in the world that are wired at least, form a giant distributed memory computer uh, if one wanted to use it that way. Okay. RISC. RISC uh, nominally stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. What it means is really a computer that uses fast and simple instructions instead of rich and complex and uh, uh, adjusted for the purpose instructions to, to do computation. And then finally, pipelining, which is just uh, the, the fancy computer hardware wor word for assembly line computation. That is designing uh, a, uh, a computation in stages, uh, and uh, each stage does something, and when you get to the end, the, the, the whole thing is done. And by the way, you can put a new one in pretty often, and they come out the other end just like cars in an assembly line. Same idea. Okay? So, so far, so good? Yeah, yeah. Sort of brain dead question. All right. right. Suppose I'm doing SETI screensavers. Do I have a supercomputer, or is that not a question worth asking? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's worth asking. Uh, and uh, some people would say, yeah, if I'm doing SETI on, on, on 3,852 at the moment, home computers uh, all networked together, it's a kind of an ad hoc, you know, supercomputer super at the moment. Now, other people would say, no, that's not a supercomputer. A supercomputer is real iron with a lot of macho stuff in it. And uh, so, so you get some overtones of that kind, especially from old hands in the business who don't like this, this sort of this loosely coupled concept. But all these machines are valuable. Uh, and, uh, you know, and in fact, for SETI at, at home uh, uh, or, 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 or SETI at work, if you, are, if you have an employer who's uh, willing to let you do that, then uh, you can certainly uh, claim a supercomputer is, uh, is working there. Okay, anything else? Great, let's go on. A few names and places. I've got a lot of acronyms. I put this in the deck just so it'd be here. Uh, what we'll see in the history of supercomputing is there's a tremendous amount of government stuff. Uh, all of these uh, are, are U.S. government things because I'm going to focus mostly on U.S. government funding and customerhood for these funky machines. Uh, but there's another set of places in Japan and uh, three very large and uh, well-known uh, uh, Japanese uh, supercomputer manufacturers who furnish those people with machines as well, including the famous, fifth, uh, sorry, the, the famous uh, Earth Simulator machine. Uh, that was uh, man manufactured by NEC. I will say something about the Japanese uh, uh, high-performance computing business, uh, maybe not what it deserves, because it has its own rich history. But I'll say something about that uh, Let me just later on in the talk. Yeah. A comment here, I think, is that you know, a natural question is whether the government should subsidize this. And our friend Butler Lampson says if the government wants submarines, the government's going government's to have to prop up the submarine industry. That's right. On the other hand, I had an exchange with Gordon Bell, another one of your whatevers, uh, years ago <laughs> in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the letters to the editor of CACM, Gordon was talking about state-sponsored computers and saying nasty things about this whole process. So. There was a period of time <coughs> in which people believed that the killer microprocessors were going to solve all high-end computing problems. And 
the bad news is they solve a very high percentage of them, but not all of them, further marginalizing the yeah. high-performance machines that can do only that last 5%. Well, there, there's another thing that happened that I don't have a slide on, but I can just mention. There's a, a sort of a thing I call the spiral of specialization. Yeah. What is high-performance computing? Well, it's what high-performance computers do, isn't it? So if high-performance high computers do less and less or different things this year than they did last year, well, high-performance computing moves with them. And so, so the, the, the narrowing of scope, the, the, the lessening of capability is, is sort of unnoticed almost because, well, we're going faster, aren't we? You know, look at this. You know, so, so, so it's a fairly complicated thing, and there has been a lot of debate. And, um, yeah, I, I know but Butler thinks that, and I guess I do too. I think if the government has a mission they need to solve with, as it happens, a computer, then they ought to be allowed to spend the money to do it. Anyway, you will see all of these people involved in funding computers, including BRL funding the ENIAC uh, way, way, way back at the beginning. It's now called ARL. Uh, but there's Los Alamos and uh, NASA and uh, all sorts of people like that on this list. And uh, I'll try to point out sort of what what went on at each of these stages as we go. Anyway, so here's, here's I think, a list of everything I mentioned in uh, somewhat more. Uh, so there's a number of really, really, really early machines, and I'll say something about a few of them, but I really want to focus on this one because we now know what Colossus was for. Colossus was this very mysterious machine at Bletchley Park that had something to do with something, and, and it turns out the Official Secrets Act was being applied as recently as just three or four years ago, and no one was, except, unless you had the clearance, was allowed to know what it was for. And the reason is that, uh, that Colossus was designed to attack rotor machines, in particular these two Lorentz machines, the SC40 and SC42, uh, which used rotors like Enigma or like Purple, like the Japanese cipher. They had these rotors that rotate like this. And uh, it was a very clever sort of attack uh, that they made on, on these, uh, on these uh, crypto systems. And the British government didn't want to expose the technology, the idea of how to attack these in this precise way to the general public until very recently. So let me just, I, yeah. I may have mentioned this before in class, but what actually was happening was the U.S. spent 30 years selling reconditioned Enigma machines to third world countries so they could have secure communication. So Yeah, well, Enigma, Enigma was easier than fish, right. actually. But that's the reason you can find Enigmas on eBay, and we have a yeah. Microsoft guy bringing one in on the last yeah. night of the class, is that they were all lovingly reconditioned yeah. by the U.S. government yeah. and sent to third world countries. And, of course, England and the U.S. didn't want it to be known that they knew yeah. how to crack the code. On the other hand, if you look at the history of... Uh, the history of... Uh, of cryptology, you'll find that there are also rotor machines dating. In fact, uh, the famous SIGABA that we used during World War II was much stronger than Enigma, actually. And uh, Enigma had several weaknesses that uh, were relatively easy to exploit. Fish was tougher, SIGABA was tougher, yet I've seen rotor machines that are really, really hard to break into. So, so there, there are degrees of all this. Anyway, this was a, th this was a thing that, uh, that uh, saw some success. Uh, there's a guy named Max Newman who then went on to found the computer architecture department at Manchester, uh, the source of the first stored program machine, the Manchester Mark I. Uh, and a guy named Tommy Flowers sort of hung out down in the Newmanry, as it was called, at Bletchley. 
and uh, got, you know, sort of some input, and then went off to Dallas Hill, where he worked, really, and built this machine with no, apparently no help from anybody at Bletchley. He just sort of did it and said, here it is, and, you know, and it worked really well. It was kind of funky. It had a paper tape data input in the form of a loop that traveled around at 30 miles an hour. They wanted to do twice that, but they found the tape kept breaking. Uh, a few vacuum tubes and um, programmed by switches, you know, on, on the front, plus this, this, this tape. Definitely not a general purpose computer, but it was an interesting looking computer. So is the tape the same for every, for every code, but the switches were different? Uh, the, the tape was not the same for every code, and the switches weren't the same for everything either. It was more complex than that. The intercept was uh, on the tape endlessly. So you got something over the radio, okay, punched up a tape, put it into a loop, and then went through rotor settings determined by the switches, which might have been assisted by something else, and eventually breaking the wheels, which was deciding what the order of the wheels was in the cipher, was eventually done on this machine. Uh, uh, whereas initially they had to know what the wheel pattern was, and then they had to, you know, that is, what the order of the rotors was as opposed to the rotary position of the rotors at the starting point, right? That kind of thing. This thing over here, this thing way over here on the right, is the, is the paper tape loop thing. It, it was known as... Draw on the tablet. So the yes, sorry, sorry. I, yeah, I, I'm not paying attention to the technology. We're yet. so techno-savvy. So this thing over here is called the bedstead, uh, for obvious reasons. Got it. Uh, it looks like you could spend a, you sort of flatten it out and, and have surgery right there. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but the, uh, the switch panel is more or less right here, that fellow. Uh, and, you know, all vacuum tube stuff. Uh, but uh, even, even serial number one that uh, Flowers delivered worked pretty well, and the version after that was faster and quite reliable. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Churchill essentially tried to have all the Colossus machines destroyed at the end of the war. Uh, and uh, GCHQ, the, the British Signals Intelligence Agency, actually preserved a couple of them for a while, and I think they're in museums now. Anyway. Another interesting early machine was the ENIAC. ENIAC uh, was uh, developed by uh, J. Presper Eckert and John Mockley uh, back in the uh, sort of during the war, uh, and and the the customer for this was the Ballistics Research Laboratory in Aberdeen, Maryland. They were interested in computing artillery firing tables which is basically, okay, uh, this gun pointed at this angle with this kind of wind, uh, blah, 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 where's the shell going to hit? So, and in particular, solve the inverse problem, uh, you know, where to point the gun in order to get the, the shell to hit at a certain place. Um, so it was unveiled at the Moore School of uh, a Penn um, in February 46, and it was a pretty big machine. It was entirely built out of a vacuum tube called 6SN7. I don't know if you, any of you are uh, either uh, history buffs enough or old enough. I, I don't think any of you are old enough to remember 6S and 7. It was a dual triode. And uh, they had a real reliability problem uh, with th that many vacuum tubes. They left it on continuously, and there was also a tube selection program. 
and they actually replaced tubes while they were alive, and they would pull out hot tubes and put other hot tubes in there. So it was a big machine, 80 feet long, but again, programmed not with a stored program idea, not storing the program in, in any kind of memory, but instead via switches and patch cables in this case. And again, not a very general purpose computer at all. Here's a, here's a picture of ENIAC showing uh, some, uh, some of the cabling. that th This is programming over here, uh, uh, not uh, stuff here. is code, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and these things here had, had uh, various settings on them. You can see the little potentiometers that essentially set variables into the program and so on. And there were a lot of people involved in the care and feeding of this thing. Lots of air conditioning. Yeah, Eric. Here's an interesting point. This is very hot, obviously, 30 tons. This thing at 175 kilowatts is about 20 racks worth of computers today. Yeah, so it's about the same power density, actually, yeah. uh, if you think about it, because this is like 20 racks or something. And, and, and power density tends to be, I mean, it fluctuates a little bit, but it's, you know, the number of kilowatts per square foot of floor tends to be kind of the same, yeah. Sometimes you think it's different. Sometimes you think, well, here's a machine that dissipate, dissipates a megawatt, and it's only as big as the podium I'm standing at. What you don't know is that it's an iceberg, and underneath the floor there is, you know, a whole lot, uh, you know, uh, 100 by 100 feet of, of cooling and air conditioning and stuff that's uh, dealing with it. So anyway. When they were programming this, they didn't use the term spaghetti code. They did not, but they should have. And in fact, some of those wires were implementing branches. I mean, there, were, there was, you know, okay, we're at this step, let's go wake that up kind of thing. So it was very, very peculiar. Here's some other early uh, computers. They're, they're pictures. Here's the amazing Zuza Z3. The only problem with Zuza was he was working for Adolf Hitler. And Hitler didn't think computers had much of a future. Uh, and also, he was completely isolated from the rest of the world, even though this is 1941. This is earlier than anything I've talked about so far. Uh, now, it looks very modern. It looks like it's some sort of, but it turns out the things you're seeing here are relays. This is a relay machine. Um, here's the famous Manchester Mark I, the first stored program computer in the upper right. It was preceded by a thing called the Baby, which was uh, the Manchester Mark I prototype. Uh, uh, which was much smaller, and it, it used a, a Williams tube, uh, just as this did, to store things on. This is a CRT where the dots light up uh, on the screen, and then the persistence of the phosphor was used to essentially uh, uh, get fed back and, and feed some more dots. There's a photomultiplier tube and all, all kinds of funky stuff to essentially build a loop to remember those bits. Uh, and on the baby, uh, you could actually watch the program run by looking at the tube and uh, debug it. And in fact, uh, when they finally got the baby to run its first program, uh, it actually ran and halted with the right answer in the tube, and everybody cheered, and it was just a pattern of dots. It was truly amazing. Uh, here's the Univac 1, which was a commercial machine um, from Univac. Computers in this era, especially big ones, high-performance ones, always showed a big bank of tape transports, and everybody thought that's what the computer was. It wasn't, you know, they'd either show the tape transports or the operator's console prominently in advertisements or whatever, and all this stuff back here, eh, that's not important. Here's the famous IAS machine. This was sort of a, a, a John von Neumann concept, I guess I would say, uh, when he was at the Institute for Advanced Study and, and sort of pioneering in this field, 
And it was really weird. The Institute was, was designing this computer and shipping the schematics to a number of places all over the United States where the machine was being built. And they started building the machine before the design was complete. So these guys were designing things and then shipping the schematic diagrams, copies, to all these places where people were building machines. There's a tremendous number of them with names like Maniac at Los Alamos and so on. Anything ending in IAC, Johnnyac, there's a whole lot of them, uh, was probably one of these IES machines. And these are in the Smithsonian. The same architecture, basically. All essentially identical. Uh, the storage for these was the same Williams tubes. Uh, Williams was a Manchester guy, as I recall. And these are the Williams tubes memories. It sort of looks like a V48 or something with these, you know, sort of 24 Williams tubes on the left and 24 on the right sort of sticking out of the side and then this computer over the top. It's a very, very sort of interesting machine. You mentioned power density. Yeah. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal today talking about a startup called SI Cortex that is trying to build a supercomputer with a much lower power consumption. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, somebody, one of my friends uh, sent me the, uh, the the website pointer, and I looked at it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a very popular topic right now. How to build lower power higher performance things, even among microprocessor manufacturers. And high performance computing uh, has had this uh, sort of bug a little bit over the last few years. Uh, there's sort of two things to do. One is build a low power supercomputer, and the other is to realize power is a limiting factor and use it to build a bigger machine. And uh, we'll talk later about a, uh, briefly about a machine called BlueGene, which definitely is in that spirit. So now I'd like to talk about mainframes. Um, in the 50s and 60s, there was tremendous, tremendous rate of progress in, in computing, uh, mostly in computer technology. Uh, just faster and faster logic, faster memory, faster everything. And uh, this, this era saw supercomputers that were essentially very similar looking to the computers we have now. The fastest available computers were these just sort of you know, hot technology, up absolutely fastest up-to-date stuff, but very conventional from an architectural point of view, right? Something we consider very vanilla today. Uh, and this got more and more outrageous until finally architecture broke out and did even more crazy things, so, so we'll get there. Uh, most of these machines were used for both business and science. That is, not at the same time necessarily, but they were intended for either a business market or a science market. And uh, later, thanks to Seymour Cray, who said, eh, we don't need any of this business stuff, uh, things got much more science-oriented in the supercomputer business. So we didn't really have business supercomputers for a while until the database machines came along, and then that was a different story. Um, so examples of this kind of technology that was coming along, magnetic core memory was a big one, uh, pioneered by the whirlwind uh, at MIT. Uh, transistor logic circuits, uh, Seymour Cray is generally credited with the first of those. His first transistor machine was a machine with the interesting name of the little character. Uh, a, uh, a very early solid state machine built with defective transistors. These were germanium point contact transistors that were too fast. Too fast. And uh, Seymour said, well, I could take those off your hands. I mean, if you really don't need them. So he did that. Uh, floating point hardware. They discovered you didn't have to do it in software. You could actually build hardware that would keep track of where the decimal point was, or the binary point, or whatever kind of point it was. 
decimal point to start with, and that, that was a major advance. Pipelining was a major advance. All these things came along and uh, made computers faster and faster and faster. Uh, very much like what happened, oh well, we'll get there in a minute. So, one yeah. question I've always had about pipelining. Yeah. Why did it take so long for that idea to really catch on? Was it just not something there was due to the difficulty of timing? No, no. I think the thing that's held pipelining up historically is that to feed a pipeline, you need concurrency. So, if you're looking at a, at a, at a von Neumann computer model that only does one instruction at a time, does an instruction, and the side effects of that instruction are felt in the memory or wherever, registers, you know, all the things that are supposed to happen in that instruction happen, and then you do the next one and the next one and the next one, there's not that much to do at once. <clears throat> right? There's only a little bit of stuff to do at once. Now, some clever got people said, oh, but I could have a one-bit wide machine and pipeline down the bits. Because, at least for a lot of operations, all those bit operations I could do in parallel. And so there was some of that done very early. But I think the main problem was that, that you needed a source of concurrency to, uh, to feed the pipeline. And there just, you know, it, it took a few years for people to discover that. Not that fact, but to, 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 to find a way to embody the parallelism in pipelining. And sure enough, there's several kinds of concurrency you can use to feed a pipeline. Um, and uh, we'll say something about that too. So here's an early mainframe. This was commissioned by Livermore. It's called the LARC, uh, which stands for Livermore something or other. Advanced Research Computer. Thank you. <laughs> I think it had a, I think that was what it was, but I think Edward Teller called it something else to start with because he was trying to hide the fact that it was going to be used to design H-bombs. So it was something like, uh, I don't know what, uh, Livermore Automatic Radiation uh, Concept or something. Anyway, it, it got renamed, though, at Livermore Advanced Computing Facility. Absolutely right. And um, it was a dual processor machine, but with decimal arithmetic. See the heritage of business. Business, business applications wanted decimal arithmetic. Uh, and so it had decimal, all the, it had floating point, decimal floating point arithmetic. And it employed a funky kind of transistor called a surface barrier transistor, but it did have core memory in it. Now, you know, Livermore procured this machine. It was actually a competitive procurement. And uh, the loser in this competition was was IBM. IBM said, well, we don't want to build anything out of surface barrier transistors or point contact transistors. What we'd really like to do is use junction, diffusion transistors, diffusion-based transistors, what we now call junction transistors. And, uh, but we don't know how to, we don't know what it's going to look like architecturally. We can't really respond to your bid. We don't, we don't even know what it's going to cost because we haven't developed these transistors yet. But we know they're coming and, you know, and Livermore said, and the well... technology difference? Why would one prefer one to the other? Tremendous reliability difference. The trouble with these... It's sort of like the difference between integrated circuits and, and wired up circuits. You know, a point contract transistor has a wire sticking into the into the into the germanium in this case, uh, and it can break and things can go wrong. And, and it's you know it's just it's just not a very reliable thing. Uh, also, there's a speed uh, difference that that was not too huge at the time. It was something. But of course, over the years, it became enormous as features, as sizes of transistors 
were made smaller and could be made smaller because of the lithographic technology that was being used to build these transistors. Whereas point contact, unless you were using nanotech, which we didn't have, uh, would not be of that speed. So IBM sort of retrenched and went to Los Alamos and said, so uh, we, could, uh, we could do this thing. Los Alamos said, sure, sure. Uh, we're not too interested in that lark anyway. Livermore can have the lark. So th there was this tremendous rivalry between Los Alamos and Livermore where each one wanted to have the best machine and the other guys were the enemy because they were competing for who was going to get the money to design the next bomb. Okay? And the better the computer they had, the more likely they were to win the contract to do the next bomb. So they had this competition in everything, including what computers they were their favorites. There's another thing that's epitomized by this, this, uh, this slide, and that is there was a, a, a very long collaboration between especially Los Alamos, but also Livermore, and the National Security Agency. They actually had very different uses for these machines, but they saw a great common interest. And so a lot of things historically, even in up, up until recent years, there's a machine called Dark Horse that was jointly funded by Los Alamos and NSA that was announced uh, a few months ago. I mean, this goes on. It continues. There were periods where they'd fallen out completely, uh, largely because of differences in taste about what kind of high-performance computers um, people thought ought to be built, but, but the theme continues. So anyway, so the result of this agreement between IBM and Los Alamos was a machine called Stretch. Uh, people like Eric Block and so on were involved in the design of this machine, and it was delivered in, in uh, 1961 uh, to Los Alamos. Um, it was tremendously advanced for its time. I mean, it had all kinds of all kinds of unusual things. If you're if you're interested, just go look at it. It's 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 too long a list to go into, uh, and it had a tremendous impact on IBM. Uh, it caused a lot of new thinking about computer architecture at IBM, and really uh, inspired them to uh, take what they learned out of Stretch and go on with. It. On the other hand, Stretch was a horrible failure as a computer. It just wasn't. It wasn't economically reasonable. It wasn't reliable enough. It was. Just a pain in the neck, generally. Um, Harvest was not a whole lot more successful. Harvest was an NSA uh, stretch that had some extra boxes on it with interesting names like tractor tape unit and so on, which was used for analysis of, uh, of, uh, of foreign uh, ciphers. Um, and uh, it lasted a bit longer than the stretch at Los Alamos. Uh, it arrived later and, and, and stayed, stayed in use uh, at an interesting little uh, girls' school, uh, and, uh, which is now, I think, occupied by the Department of Homeland Security, right across from the vice president's residence in Washington, D.C. Uh, so anyway, so uh, these are the pictures of the machines. Notice the emphasis on operator consoles here. I mean, it's just absolutely, you know, it's where the people are and, and so on. You'll see more of that as I go forward here. Well, now we get to the real, the real star of the show, or, the, or one of the real stars Sorry, of the show. Was Lark successful, more successful than Stretch and Harvest? Lark, Lark was, I think, comparable in success to Stretch and and, and Harvest. Maybe, maybe Harvest was more successful than either uh, Stretch or Lark because of the, of the somewhat narrower range of application of, uh, of, uh, of Harvest. But uh, 
But I don't think, uh, you know, I really don't think Lark was was a a, a flaming success. How was program? Were there Fortran compilers or something? Well, so yeah, good question. I don't. I don't really know what kind of compilers either Harvest or, or Lark had. Uh, I know some people I could ask, but I really the don't know what was there. Single threaded, single oh yeah. Well, it was kind of funny. The Lark had sort of three processors, two computational processors and a service processor, and the operating system was somewhat distributed across all three of those processors. So I wouldn't say it was single-threaded. On the other hand, I wouldn't say it was embarrassingly parallel either. Got right. Okay. Uh, stretch was a, a, a box. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and a lot of those early machines were not multi-user machines. They were single-user machines without much of an operating system, as we would call it today. Um, now, now we come to the 6600, and this was an amazing thing. So let me go back a little and tell you a little bit about Seymour Cray and Bill Norris. So... Bill Norris and, and Howard Engstrom were founders of a company called ERA, uh, which started working for uh, what was uh, the predecessor of the National Security Agency during World War II. And after the war, they were encouraged to start a company to continue building special purpose hardware for, uh, for, the, uh, for the cryptologic establishment, basically. So they founded a company called ERA, or for Engineering Research Associates, and that company got acquired by Univac. And after a while, uh, you know, Bill Norris and his star engineer that he hired into the glider factory that ERA occupied in Minneapolis, uh, named uh, Seymour Cray, decided that they really weren't interested in Univac's business, which was mostly banks. What they really wanted to do was you know, keep doing these funky, interesting machines for NSA. Uh, and other people like that, Los Alamos, Livermore, people like that. So they spun off and started a company called Control Data, or CDC, Control Data Corporation. And CDC started to build interesting things. The 1604 was the first successful transistorized computer. This little character that I referred to earlier was sort of the prototype techno technologically for the CDC 1604, and it was it was it was a transistor machine that made money, uh, which was kind of interesting. But Seymour wasn't really interested in the 1604 either. He wanted to build supercomputers, fastest computer in the world, for scientific problems. That's that's all he cared about. He didn't want to do any of this business stuff, and he definitely didn't want to build slow machines. So he started to work, and he he came up with this idea for a machine called the CDC 6600. Uh, along with a friend of his named Jim Thornton, who also worked at Control Data. There's a book called The Design of a Machine, the CDC 6600, which if you can find it anywhere in print, wherever, uh, well, it won't, won't be in print, but uh, you might be able to find a copy on, on, uh, on Amazon or somewhere. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting read. Um, they, uh, they designed this machine, and it was just remarkable in many, many ways. It was very, very simple. Tremendously simple, uh, you know, aimed entirely at speed and using as few transistors as, as they possibly could. In spite of that fact, it had 10 different functional units, 10 different operations could be going on at the same time in this box. You know, they had two multipliers and this kind of adder and that kind of adder, floating point stuff and shifts and logicals and all kinds of other things, 
and all of it could be could be running at the same time. Uh, this overlapped instruction style, running multiple function units at the same time, is what we call superscalar architecture today. So Seymour Cray and Jim Thornton are the inventors of superscalar. Sorry, let me ask the compiler question again. So in 1964, sure. were there compilers that generated GC code for this thing, or did you use assembly language? They they appeared. Decent compilers evolved and, and appeared for these machines. Uh, CDC did did a compiler for for for. Ran compiler for this machine. If you look at the date, 1964, it's late enough so the compiler technology was really, really uh, coming along. Remember, you know, uh, Algol 58, Algol 60, Algol 58 was really mad in languages like that. Algol 60 was kind of kind of the first first real languages, and Fortran itself, of course, were sort of around then, and and the and the compilers for those languages. You know, but by this time we're starting to get re reasonably good. That said, the 6600 presented some somewhat interesting challenges to the compiler writer. Not nearly as much as we have today, for example, but nevertheless, there's some interesting idiosyncrasies the machine has that uh, that uh, that were that were challenging. But but by the 6600 time, you bet, and that's the way the uh, users uh, program these machines. Um, who are the target companies, the target customers for this? Presumably not academic astronomers. No, it wasn't academic. It wasn't academics at all. It was it was weapons laboratories, national security agency, and people like that. And there were a number of these sold to those very people. As a matter of fact, Seymour sort of prided himself on building, you know, maybe ten or twenty machines was what he wanted to build. He said, you know, there's, there should only be 20 people that need a computer this fast. If there are more customers than that, it's not fast enough. It's, it's not aggressive it's not enough. It's not expensive enough. Well, right. It's sort of a measure of, of, of how powerful the machine is as to how few customers there were. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious, yeah. Uh, the Thornton book, Design of, a, of the CDC 6600, there's yeah. a scan of it linked off of uh, Wikipedia. Excellent. So Wikipedia comes to the rescue again. There's a scan of that book uh, by Thornton and Cray. And uh, so it's uh, it's worth looking at. And you'll find all this stuff in there. Uh, by the way, there was a very famous circuit uh, used to coordinate that multiple, multiple operations at the same time kind of thing called a scoreboard. The scoreboard would essentially keep track of, of what was what was going on, and in particular, what registers, what places in the in the processor were going to be filled up with operations from from things in progress, and wh what to hook them into. So, sort of sort of determining the order of events in there. And it was a it was a piece of work, a very amazing piece of hardware. There was another funny thing about the 6600. They uh, they decided that the I/O processors uh, didn't be, need to be nearly as fast as the CPU, and they had a, lar a fairly large number of I/O channels. There were actually 12 I/O channels on the 6600, and they needed about 10 processors to service these 12 I/O channels and do a couple of other things. So they wanted really 10 little sort of not too bright processors. Uh, and they had a logic technology that was really, really fast. So they said, well, I tell you what we'll do. We'll just build a processor that makes believe 
it's doing 10 different processors worth of stuff. It'll just sort of switch between processors every cycle. So it's like, all right, let's work on processor zero and do one instruction. And then let's do one instruction for processor one, and then one for two, and then one for three, and so on, until you get up to nine. And then you go back to zero and, and do the next instruction for number zero. Uh, they, they implemented this thing called the barrel, which was a, a sort of a barrel of state. I forget how many bits there were, but some, some funny number like 113 bits of state or something. I have another talk in my machine, that, uh, which isn't this machine, that, that actually goes into all that. But uh, it's a very, very sort of parsimonious kind of thing. And so this idea has since become known as multi-threading, and I've made mileage out of it, and various people at the universities and institutions represented here have as well, and it's a fairly well-known idea now, and Intel builds machines that do this and so on. So but this, this was the, the origin of it. Was hmm? the implementation of subsequent PG PPUs? Uh, the PPUs on the 7600 were also implemented the same way. Yeah, just faster clock, but the same implementation. Okay? Yeah? How was the operating system? What did well, there were several. <laughs> uh, there were several. There was a, an operating system called the Chippewa operating system, named in honor of the place that Seymour Cray was born and, in fact, moved to after a little while uh, when he got completely tired of Minneapolis and controlled data politics. Sort of in the middle of this, he moved to uh, Chippewa Falls. And so there was a Chippewa operating system, and then there was an operating system called Scope, which was fairly popular, uh, that controlled data built, and most people use Scope. It was a more advanced operating system that actually came in before the end of life of this machine called Kronos, which was yet another operating system. And then there was the famous Livermore time-sharing system, which was developed by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and after that became known as the Cray time-sharing system, because Los Alamos couldn't possibly have an operating system inside the walls that was called something like the Livermore operating system. So LTSS became CTSS, and I think CTSS also became known as the something else. But anyway, but, but yeah, so the Cray time-sharing system. And then there was an amazing system at NSA called Folklore, which uh, used uh, a terminal that had a compile button on it and other things. And the editor was multi-threaded uh, inside the machine. It's a, it's a long story, but a very amusing story. So boy, were there operating systems for this machine, lots of them. The initial idea was that the operating system would run entirely on these I.O. processors. And the CPU would be no, do nothing but computing and all the other stuff, not only I.O., but interactive uh, uh, terminal service, such as it was, everything else would be done on the what are called the peripheral processors, the, these I.O. processors. And that tended not to work out. They just, the, uh, there wasn't enough horsepower in those, in those PPUs. So, uh, so then there was uh, an operating system that sort of had a combination of stuff, some of it in the I.O. processors or the peripheral processors, and some of it in, in, the, in the CPU. So uh, it's a bit of a uh, long story. And as a result of the architecture of this machine, now the usual definition of what risk means is really invented by Seymour Cray because uh, the 6600, among other things, was also the first risk machine, as far as we know. Uh, the other, other, another cool thing, this is just an amazing machine. Another cool thing about this machine is the very, very Star Trek-like uh, console. Uh, no switches, no lights, just a keyboard and a screen on which characters were displayed. I mean, what could be more modern, right? Why does it have two, two screens? 
I don't remember why it has two screens. I, I mean, it might have been, it might have been just to have room to do things, but I suspect not. I suspect it was something more subtle than that, but I don't know. Okay. Uh, you can also see the kind of wiring that Seymour uh, employed: uh, twisted pair, uh, running just faster than a banshee and normally kept hidden behind closed doors so people wouldn't say, oh my god, how do you work on that? <laughs> What's the button on the desk? Uh, that may be the, I don't know, maybe the self-destruct button, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's also some sort of birthday card here that I don't understand. You can see the kind of power we're talking about, and this is substation kind of power. Anyway. The food pellet or the uh, programmer. Yeah, yeah. This is the first machine I actually taught assem assembly language on. It wasn't the first machine I programmed, but I arrived at the University of Colorado, and a week later I was teaching how to program this, this machine, this assembly language. I'd never seen it before. So uh, I learned to love it well. Well, meanwhile, Thomas Watson just, you know, he was really mad. He said, how in the world can this little upstart enterprise in Minneapolis or Chippewa Falls or wherever they are possibly beat the IBM, uh, which is what he called his company, the IBM, at, uh, at, this, at, at this high performance computing game? And of course, Seymour said, well, you know, <laughs> he answered his own question. You know, uh, this uh, vast development activities was Seymour's reason why IBM could never, you know, compete uh, in this space. Uh, nevertheless, uh, IBM took off and said, okay, we're going to do something serious, and they did. And this thing, this, this, this is really a re another remarkable machine called the 36091. It had a lot of names. The, actually, it was called the 370195 and so on. Uh, it had to be called the 37195 because IBM was selling 370s after 360s. 360s were passe, but the 370 was the new thing. But here was this tremendously, still the fastest machine IBM had. It, didn't, it couldn't do virtual memory or dynamic address translation like the other 370s, but it had to be a 370 because it was up to date in every way and faster than anything around. And so they called it the 37195. <coughs> it was the only 370 without a DAT box, without dynamic address translation. Um, it was delivered to NASA Goddard, I think, was the, the first uh, shipment of this thing, but there were lots of other ones shipped around. Argonne National Lab had one or two. Slack made great hay with these machines, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Princeton actually had one. Princeton. A lot of people had one. Uh, and it was amazing. The killer app for this machine was the airline flight reservation system, which was called PARS at the time. Uh, for, for passenger airline reservation system. It was all written with with small macros in macro assembler, and the macros had to be a certain size because they all got scheduled in a sort of a, it was a very funky, very funky code, and I think it lives on. I think it's, it's out there in Saber and Apollo and those <laughs> things still, this very same deal. Hitachi built some tremendously fast uh, versions of the, of, the, uh, of the IBM instruction set, you know, the System 360. Uh, even fairly recently, and I think it was doing transaction processing of this type uh, was the main application for it. So just a really, really big deal for IBM, and they sold a, a fair number of these. It was very close to the 7600, which is the next machine we'll talk about, in speed. They're sort of more or less even Stephen. The arithmetic on the, on, on the 7600 was better in some ways and worse in others. They had more significant uh, bits but the arithmetic was a little sloppier. So 
you took your choice. But they were they were very comparable uh, one to the other. Uh, this is kind of the antithesis, though, of, of Seymour's 6600 console. This is lights and switches. You know, you like lights and switches? You'll love this one. Look at this. Look at this. It's all binary, right? And there's switches. I mean, well, it goes on and on. Question? Yeah. So at that time, what are the uh, benchmarks to pair this machine with the mainstream machines? Uh, the most famous benchmark, well, mainstream machine, you mean... Like... Regular super, IBM 360 60, 40, 60, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, 70, but uh, you know, I don't I don't know what the business machines, which is what IBM was making, used for benchmarks back then. I just don't know how they measured that. Uh, I know what the scientific, what the supercomputer benchmarks looked like, and uh, there was a a number of of little Fortran kernels that uh, Frank McMahon of Lawrence Livermore National Lab wrote up to try to measure measure machine performance, and this machine and the 7600 both did quite well on those, on those, on those benchmarks. Okay. By the way, if you look up Livermore loops, you'll find out all about those. Just go, you know, surf the web. Here's what this console is missing, though. Yeah? Remember the 360 had a red shutdown button to report. Well, I think, I I think on this machine it was considered too dangerous to expose to the operator. <laughs> It was actually an engineer's console on this machine as well, and that may have been where the EPO button Got was. Okay. Or, or on the wall on the side of the, or somewhere, but not here. I mean, God knows, you can get yourself in real trouble. Uh, okay. Normally, when you pulled emergency power off on an IBM mainframe in this time, uh, the machine needed repair uh, to recover. It was, not, it was not a pretty thing, because it was presumably influencing human safety or whatever, so they didn't bother to shut down gracefully. They just took her down. I have a question. Given that these computers were so different, how could you uh, compare one machine against the other? What 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 was the way well, of measuring their, their speed, I guess? Well, as I said, there was these Livermore loops, uh, which were Fortran kernels that did s sort of very simple things. In fact, they were really fragments from Livermore big programs, full-scale programs, that they found were performance bottlenecks and, and interesting uh, sort of uh, things that that sort of looked like uh, critical path or, or 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 important things, and some of them were really simple, like uh, you know uh, like reductions or first order linear recurrences, things that looked something like uh, uh, CI equals CI plus uh, AI minus one. Uh, sorry, CI equals CI minus one plus AI. You know, so wrap that in a loop, right? So what's happening is you're sort of generating all the partial sums of the AI into this array CI. So, you know. So but there's still, first of all, like even today, huge dissension about benchmarks, right? So these yes. kernels may not be representative of how applications run. Right. Uh, another thing is, as right. recently as 15 or 20 years ago, the database manufacturers were all just lying through their teeth about 
performance. And Jim Gray, now at Microsoft, invented another one of those guys right, at Microsoft. Invented the TPC benchmark suite with about right. there were about twenty of us who worked on this. This was this this I'm sure Jim will tell you this is a good TPC machine. Right. And and the TPC benchmark was the authors of the paper were called Anon et al. Because except for a few of us, it was all people at companies whose companies would have killed them for coming up with a level playing field benchmark. Right. <laughs> or or pointing at the emperor with too much candor. Right. 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 Well, so yeah, but the as I say, the situation at just this time involved these livermore loops things. Right? And more about them in a minute. Okay. So that's the three sixty ninety one. Also known as the 36095, also known as the 37195, and God knows what else. Um, so its contemporary uh, was the CDC 7600, the follow-on to the 6600, and very compatible with it in many, many ways. Uh, there were a few differences, but mostly not. It was faster by about a factor of three or so, um, but its arithmetic was pipelined. This was the, you know, this was an early example of that. Uh, it's not exactly clear uh, on the face of it why you need to pipeline a machine like this, but it turns out that you could issue instructions faster than you could, you know, you could retire them, especially if they were a lot of the same kind of thing. For example, if you had a whole lot of multiplies and adds, it was not really the right thing to do to provision the machine with a lot of multipliers and adders just to keep up with that. It was more intelligent to do what's called segmentation, to build a pipeline out of the multiplier and the adder. And it turns out it's just as easy to pipeline everything. Uh, and so that, that made the machine a bit faster. Uh, the estimate, again, is another factor of three faster than it would have been otherwise. So this thing was about, I don't know, maybe 10 times fa as fast as the CDC 6600, which is a big step, given it was only uh, <coughs> you know, five years after it or so. Um, it was very compact, uh, quite small, and so small, so tight, in fact, that it had to be cooled with Freon. There were aluminum plates that had Freon circulating in them attached to the back of the modules. The modules, by the way, were really cute. And In fact, the 36091 modules were also cute. These were little sort of what is called cordwood construction a couple of circuit boards with a lot of discrete components between the two circuit boards in a tight little module with some coax connectors and stuff in it. They plugged into things. It was very cute. It's sort of like deck flip chip technology, only only more uh, more more stuff than that, if you remember what that is. The 7600 was also, in my opinion, one of the world's most beautiful computers. Here's a couple of them uh, at Livermore, I believe. Uh, sort of shaped like a room. You could sort of wander into one, you know, look around. Sort of, you could, you could sort of a cubicle, you know, sort of thing. And uh, yeah, all the wire was on the inside. Again, was there wiring transecting the interior of that thing? No, all the wiring was on the inner surface of this C-shaped room. Maybe C for Cray, or maybe Chippewa, or maybe CDC. I don't know. Anyway, there's a C there, and. Uh, Nice wood paneling on the corners, you know, kind of black glass. You couldn't really see what was inside unless you got up close. It was very, very nice, very appealing sort of package. How much did one uh, cost? Uh, order seven, ten million dollars, something. It depended on what you got, but yeah. During this period, supercomputers were kind of that. They were kind of like seven million dollars, or eight, or five, or ten, or something in that neighborhood. Not a hundred million as today. Yeah. Question from San Diego. Yeah, San Diego. So, uh, 
Were the agencies contacting companies like Cray and saying, hey, you need to build us faster and faster, or was Cray saying, look, this is what I can deliver, and I'm just going to make something, and I know that there's going to be a fault. So, yeah, so, I mean, certainly the laboratories, uh, the customers, were interested in things that were faster and faster. But they wouldn't tell Seymour how to do things faster, because they didn't know how to do that. He knew how to do that. They did something much more obnoxious. They told him how to suck eggs. So they, they told him, well, what you really should do, Seymour, is you should do this. Or we could really use it something that looked more like this than what you gave us last time. Or whatever. They, gave, they, they asked for all kinds of things. And uh, people would, you know, walk up to Seymour and give him various kinds of advice or, or ideas. Uh, Seymour, why don't you design a machine that looks like this? And he'd say, hmm, very interesting. Why don't you go do that? <laughs> <laughs> was he in a cycle where he was just, after he did one machine, he would design another one knowing that there was somebody going to be buying it? Yes, yes. I mean, there was no doubt that everything Seymour was making, especially in this era, uh, people wanted and would buy. And he knew his customers well enough to know that. He knew, so the whole trick in computer architecture is not listening to your customers. It's understanding what your customers need, but not you shouldn't pay any attention to what they tell you because what they'll tell you is how to modify the thing you just did into something that they think they might want. But what you really need to do is understand what they're doing and what their unmet needs are and, and how better to serve the needs you understand and, and, how, and discover you know, things about where they're going. And then you can do a pretty good job. Uh, and that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. Did they bring up, sir? Did they, pay him in, did they pay him in advance, or did they just have the money to produce one of these computers and then sell them later? Well, so he didn't believe in government funding. Uh, and Cray Research didn't believe in government funding. So they would build these things on their own nickel and then sell them. And they didn't take contracts for these things. Now, they had a sort of a, a very secure customer relationship. So they weren't worried about whether people would buy these things once they built them. But they were not, unlike Lark, unlike Harvest uh, and Stretch, unlike ENIAC, a lot of machines. Uh, the control data machines and later the Cray Research machines, the early ones, were not funded by directly under government contracts. Seymour didn't want government telling him what to do. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And if they didn't like it, they didn't have to buy it. If they did, well... Here, here I am. Come buy my stuff. Yeah. So was it in theory competitive, but he was the only compliant and the only person who had a chance of being compliant? It wasn't in theory. It wasn't in theory competitive. It was just flat out competitive. They just this machine, the 7600. No, no. I'm saying not his machine being competitive, but was the bidding in theory competitive? But he was the only one who could offer a compliant product, or they just well, flat out ordered it. So single source. So yeah. So I don't think it was quite that way. I mean, for example. Uh, as we'll see in a minute, uh, you know, th there were a number of people building machines uh, that were very high-performance machines, and they just weren't as good as Seymour's machines. Okay. Uh, uh, some of them were funded by, you know, by government agencies. Some of them were just flyers. Uh, the Texas Instruments ASC, for example, TI thought they could build a machine, a vector machine that would do seismic processing real well, and it had some other customers, and it was a very nice machine but it just wasn't as good as the Cray-1. 
Exactly. So they really were the best. They really were the best. You bet. Did the supercomputing problems change over time? So you think about 1960 and you have the physics community with a million images that need to be analyzed to find the rare event. And I'm wondering if you started having new applications that weren't quite in the classical weapons mode that he'd grown up with where you're doing sort of simulations a millionth of a time, second time steps. Yeah, I mean, there were, and I think in some ways Seymour was ahead of those applications. <coughs> uh, I mean, he actually was able to anticipate some of them. For example, the Cray-1 didn't have gather-scatter hardware, whatever that is, I mean, the ability to address memory randomly. It was able to do that kind of operation because it was just such a fast scalar machine. Uh, but it had, it, had, it had some capabilities that only became important later as people moved towards more irregular computations that they wanted to do. And that trend has continued, and, uh, and uh, machine, machine design for scientific computing has become more challenging as a result. And it, it was migrating even then. Uh, used to be people solved partial differential equations by a technique called relaxation, the very, very slowly converging algorithm. Uh, and they, you know, moved on beyond that to do all sorts of other much fancier things, including using FFTs to solve uh, partial differential equations and so on. And, and uh, you know, machines that, uh, that Cray built and others built, actually, uh, not giving him all the credit, because other people were able to do this too, managed to keep up with that reasonably well. I think that's because in... Supercomputing, the users, the, the people with the applications, and the people that build the machines have been in close contact for, for decades, long, long time. I mean, the reason I know a lot about the applications for these machines is because of that very fact. And the same is true of everybody else who's been in this field. There's just a lot of, 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 um, of confluence and a lot of, of uh, education and so on that goes on. Uh, in, in high-performance computing between the people that build the systems, software and hardware, and the people that use them. Question to Microsoft. Yeah. Did these machines create the need for the raised floors, or did those exist beforehand? Um, certainly, certainly Seymour's machines needed it. Uh, I think it was, I think in the early, early days it was sort of a mixed, a mixed thing. But raised floors turned out to be the easiest way to get first the air and then the plumbing and then finally the cabling into these machines. Cabling didn't get to be a problem until later, but plumbing, that is dealing with the Freon or the water or whatever, well, IBM used water. But, but System 360s were all in raised floor machines. Yes, and, and they were water-cooled. The, the big ones. I was, no, but, but the ones up through the 75 were air-cooled. Oh, the little ones were. The big ones, the 91. 91 was, was not water cool. So, but, they, but the point is, even the ones that were air cooled were on raised floors. Yeah. For the air and the cable. Yeah, yeah. They ran air up through the machine, and a lot of, of high performance computers have been built that way. The Japanese don't build machines that way. They build almost exclusively, not quite, almost exclusively air cooled machines, and almost all of them, with some very notable exceptions, are cooled with hot aisle, cold aisle, that is, inside the room technology as opposed to underfloor air. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, but, but I think the main reason for raised floor is just to clean up all of the pro subsystem provisioning for these machines. It took a lot of power, and there was a lot of heat to get out, and that was the first argument. And then later it became a lot of cables too. So, yeah. I have a question. 
uh, at the time, you know, all those computers were involved in defense and military. A lot of them were in those areas. How did the how did the government make sure that this technology stayed inside the government? Because yeah. the research by private companies. Right? Yeah. So how did how did the government keep things in? Well, they had a they had a, they had export control on supercomputers. There was a a magic unit of of measure called MTOPS, which stands for millions of theoretical operations per second. And theoretical <laughs> means you didn't actually have to run that fast. It was just you know, if it looked like you could run that fast, well, right. And there were some problems with definitions of MTOPS, that, and so it needed adjustment from time to time, but basically that was it. If you had too many MTOPS, you couldn't export without a license. So you had to apply to the Department of Commerce for a license to export this machine. It would wind up uh, in the, under the eyes of the intelligence people and the weapons people, and if they said okay, or if it was going to a place that was friendly, not India for many, many years, but you know, lots of other places, then, then, then fine, otherwise not. And that's sort of how things ran. In recent years, that all got knocked into a cocked hat because of two things. Number one, they couldn't keep up with how fast the MTOPs were going up. And second, anybody in the world could go buy you know, a couple of boxcar fulls of PCs and wire them up with, with Ethernet and have a supercomputer, or at least something that was pretty good. And they couldn't inhibit that. So that whole thing has sort of fallen into disrepute as well as 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 as, as dysfunctionalness, uh, and it isn't a, a major deal anymore. But were the design ideas and secrets at the time? Design ideas were also very much. Uh, I mean, certainly the companies with the ideas wanted to protect the ideas. But when, for example, when my company, when Cray, did a deal with NEC. Uh, the, a major, in fact, a traditional competitive craze for years and years and years. There was a tremendous amount of concern about leakage of intellectual property from Cray to NEC, and we reassured them it was entirely a marketing agreement. We had no cooperative development or R&D uh, activity at all, but they were, there was a lot of concern about that. So you bet, that's, that's been a major, a major uh, a concern for people. Yeah. How do you prototype your code for these really expensive supercomputers? You don't, you don't develop directly on it, do you? You do. You do develop directly on it. And in fact, the reason for these, these operating systems, for the 6600 and 7600 called CTSS and Folklore and so on, was chiefly to let people develop on the machine. They weren't designed to be interactive, but various uh, interesting things were done to make it possible to use these machines interactively, and they actually did quite well at it. Uh, but that, yeah, w if your main business is, is programming, that's how it was done. There were other things done. Uh, Cray had an arrangement later with digital, where essentially digital machines could run the Cray Fortran compiler so that people could prototype uh, scientific code on VAXs and then move them over to Cray's for production. So there's been a lot of things tried to make that work. Yeah. What is the worst example? What was the machine that the Florida and original Princeton supercomputer center proposal based on ETA? Is that what it was? Yes. I don't have that in this 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 deck, but I so this is a machine I could easily have told you a lot about the ETA from 10. the 80s that basically had I mean no software. And the guy would give this talk and he'd say no software, and people would titter, and then he'd say, No, I meant no software. And the way you would run an app on this thing is you would program the app on like a sixty six hundred. And you would write a bootable image on the disk pack, and then you would move the disk pack over to the ETA, and you would hit the boot button. 
Okay, and the yeah. ETA would boot this yeah. image, run the physics code, and write the results back to the disk pack, and then crash, and you'd move it back to the side. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I like mean, twenty odd physics papers were published using this technique before they went belly up. Well, there was all kinds of weird things about that. You should get in, talk to a guy named Neil Lincoln, who was the architect of the ETA ten, and who, who was threatening to write a, write a book about it, um, uh, called Ship in Seventy: The True Story of the, of, of, of the. Uh, of the machine, but but uh, yeah, it was it was interesting in that it was immersed in liquid nitrogen. I mean, there's a number of interesting th things about the ETA-10 uh, that I could talk about, but uh, it was it was done a bit on a shoestring and with the guidance of controlled data marketing, which was not precisely a good thing. And so uh, there were a lot of decisions made. For example, I remember a meeting we had at Livermore, Cray and me. I mean, I was with a different company at the time. This Denelcor thing. And uh, CDC, who was responsible for this machine, and we t we all said, you know, we think Unix is what we want to put on these machines. This is back in the days of System Three, System Five kind of time, and all except the control data representative. Turns out, control data marketing wanted to preserve their installed base by running this very strange control data batch system that was used by three people in Europe and no one else on the planet. And they actually tried to implement Unix on the machine uh, at the first customer site in Japan uh, when they folded. I mean, it was just a very bad scene. So uh, it wasn't. It, it was. It was more a corporate uh, mess than it was a an engineering mess. I think in a lot of ways. Ed, uh, I was at that computer room in Princeton, uh -huh. and if you walked around the. CDCs and the VAXs and all the other stuff. Everybody got very nervous when you got within 10 feet of the ETA 10 because there was this rumor that if you walked around it the wrong way, it would crash. Yeah, well, it was, it was, there were a lot of interesting things about that. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a tour, tour de force. I mean, any, any machine that, you know, uses liquid nitrogen as a coolant and refrigerant uh, is, uh, Pretty macho machine. It had a lot of interesting things about it. it. Had the most advanced circuit boards in the world in it. Uh, it was it was too much for control data. That was the problem. The wrong company was making it. If some other company like Fujitsu had made it, it'd be great. But control data just couldn't get out of its own way, and it was just a very sad story. What was the technological imperative for this high power density? I mean, you start with ENIAC, where you just bolt on another set yeah. of racks, and you seem to yeah. be in that world now with wiring up PCs. Yep. What was it in this era that you wanted the thing to be very, very small and very, very power intensive? Short wires. Wires wanted to be short. Uh, wires, wires in, the, in, in these machines, you know, needed to be a clock pulse or less long, typically. Uh, That's why they were also round. Right? Seymour Cray actually pipelined wires occasionally, and I've been known to do that too, but. I mean, have more than one bit on the wire at a time. Communications people do it all the time, but computer people didn't do it for a long time. Now it's very commonplace. But, uh, but mainly you wanted the wires to be very short, and so that tended to pull the whole machine into a dense kind of package. It was the, it was the time of our, flight. Our conversation over dinner, yeah. we're in exactly the same boat now with microprocessors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? They're just too hot. You can't get the heat away, right. so we're not making them any faster. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's total power, too. It's not... It's not power density, although power density is serious, but we have heat pipes that we could spread power over the whole box if we wanted to. It's money to spread it over a whole yep. laptop. It would, it would cost more than not, but 
but it could be done. It's, it's really a question of total power. Battery life in the laptop and mobile case is very crucial. I think if we wanted to go to 200 watt you know, desktops, we could do it as an industry, as a, you know, but uh, it's just, but, but, but here it was not, it wasn't any of that. I mean, basically we could cool anything we could build. The problem was, you know, getting it as small as possible with the, the packaging that uh, went with it in order to get the wires short. Now here's a machine that wasn't so small. This is the ILLIAC-4, uh, maybe even more infamous than the ETA-10. I mean, the ILLIAC-4 uh, was a very, very long project. It was funded by DARPA. Uh, it arose out of a machine that a guy named Dan Slotnick and some of his colleagues worked on when Slotnick was at Westinghouse called Solomon. And Solomon was kind of the proto SIMD machine. This was the idea was this, okay? We keep making these machines smaller and smaller and smaller and denser and denser and so on, and we're sort of running out of horsepower. We need to get more than one thing going on at a time. We need to have multiple operations. And looking at the 6600 with its uh, multiple functional units and so on, the idea was well, why couldn't we have, a, you know, just a whole lot of functional units being driven by a single instruction. Not just one functional unit, like the adder driven by an add instruction, but actually have an ad that could get a whole lot of ads going on. And so that was the idea behind Solomon and later behind the ILLIAC-4. Uh, it was sort of uh, led out of the University of Illinois, uh, Dave Cook in particular, and by Burroughs. And uh, they uh, uh, proposed to DARPA and got funded uh, for a machine. Um, the target, after a little while, became uh, NASA Ames. Uh, NASA Ames was interested in the machine for computational fluid dynamics. And so um, they rolled along. It was a very ambitious machine. They were anticipating uh, 256 arithmetic units arranged in a 16 by 16 array, square array, sort of in one box. They sort of imagined one box with you know, this huge array of, of memory and arithmetic. I guess the way to think about this is there's a control unit sitting in the center like a spider, and then this whole array was sort of going ka-chunk, 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 doing the same instruction on all these 256 different memories, 26 different processing units, you know, sort of. And then there was a way to communicate north, south, and east, west on this mesh, and maybe something fancier depending on the machine. Not ILIAC, but some of the other machines had fancier communication between, between the, 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 the columns, if you will. Um, it had to get scaled back to 64 uh, for uh, packaging reasons, and they decided to use a thin film memory system for main memory, which was just nothing but a headache from beginning to end, and slowed them down quite a bit. And then there was a riot. Uh, actually, there were several riots. There was a riot in Illinois. Maybe a demonstration is a better word. It was a lot of protest. Uh, this was uh, sort of at a, a pretty crucial time in the anti-Vietnam era, and there was feelings that ILLIAC-4 was supporting the government's uh, war uh, effort, and so there were demonstrations. There was also some things happening in Wisconsin and so on. So uh, the project decided in the name of prudence they would actually move it inside the fence at NASA Ames, at the eventual site. And then they worked on it out there from, this, from that point forward. There were a bunch of languages developed for this machine with names like Glipnir and Ilya and Ivytran. Uh, Ivytran, uh, I don't know whether the 4 is for the Iliac 4 or Fortran, but one or the other, they're both good. 
Um, and uh, these languages actually had explicitly parallel loops and then sort of compiler-detected parallel loops. So this is the beginning of automatic parallelizing compilers. And of course, a lot of you know that Dave Cook and his students way back uh, were sort of pioneers in this space. And it's ILIAC 4 that was sort of the training ground for that work and those people. And I think the value of ILIAC 4 in encouraging that work uh, it was a bargain in spite of the fact the machine was a turkey. Uh, there was a lot of compiler expertise developed. Uh, were those programming languages functional? None of them were functional. Uh, functional languages started to emerge about this time, though. It's just not for ILIAC 4. Uh, it was uh, Jean-Claude Cyr uh, at, uh, at uh, CERT in Toulouse that was working on the first functional language at about this time. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't infecting the Illinois guys uh, at this point. Yeah. Were these machines I/O bound? Well, Ken Batcher, who I'll say more about later, says that a supercomputer is a machine that turns a compute bound problem into an I/O bound problem. So the answer is yes. That was easy. Throw me another software. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just surprised. I mean, it seems like no, you're absolutely. talking about absolutely. where the processors get more and more complex, and they're doing more and more to make those super scalar. But if the machine was I/O bound, why weren't they investing in? Well, they were. They were. So there was a tremendous investment in the ILIAC 4, for example, in I/O. But the machines, nevertheless, wound up being I/O bound. Uh, and. Uh, you know, several things happened as a result of that. One was people got interested in programs that didn't do I.O. So they got bigger and bigger memory, or they specialized the machines to things that didn't need vast amounts of data, that essentially were doing uh, simulation uh, that, that, you know, that, that was more complex, basically, and had more compute cycles to bring the I.O. back into balance. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, but they were all I.O. bound. There were tremendous I.O. devices uh, developed over this era by Livermore people. They had a thing called a photo store, which just stored bits on film. Uh, you know, right once, but they could get a lot of a lot of bits and a fair amount of bandwidth out of it. There, there were jukeboxes of, I mean, oh, amazingly, amazing kludges. The I.O. the I.O. stuff is just a story in itself. Uh, I could do another, uh, let me not go there. This is, one talk is bad enough, but it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, So what effort. was the mean time between? RAID was invented largely because of this. What yeah. was the mean time between failure of large scale machines in 1965 or 70? It depended. This, you know, the ILIAC 4 was measured in hours. Uh, How about a 7600? 7600 was, was like a day. Okay. On a good day. Uh, 7600 was fairly unreliable uh, for its time. 6600 was a, a bit, a bit stronger, a bit, bit better machine. But once, uh, you know, it, it kind of depended. So some, some, some machines, uh, some we'll get to, would stay up for weeks and weeks without any trouble at all. But some of these early machines were a little flaky, partly because they were built out of discrete components, and partly, I don't know, they were sort of bleeding edge too. So there wasn't a lot it of... exacerbates the I.O. bound that it's going to be doing checkpoints if the thing's going to be going... Well, that's right. And, and, you know, and check, checkpoint restart was invented by this business, too, not by the database guys. These guys, they wanted computations that would run for days. 
And if the machine would only run for a few hours, well, they had to do something about that. And initially, the checkpoints were generated by the programmer. The programmer would get to a good point in the computation, take the state, and write it to disk. It was called a drop file. And uh, then they'd reload from there instead of the beginning if they, if they had to. Um, so anyway, onward. Here's a picture of ILIAC-4. Pretty big machine. Uh, I think that's one of these... Uh, uh, one of these memories that's pulled out there. Uh, and again, notice the focus on, you know, the operators. <laughs> well, uh, besides the ILIAC-4, there were some other uh, SIMD uh, machines that were developed. These were both derivative from the ILIAC-4 and both Burroughs designs, interestingly enough. Uh, one was the Parallel Element Processing Ensemble, which was sold to Charlie Vick down at Huntsville to try to track ballistic missiles. They had 288 processors. SIMD, though, which always struck me as being very weird. Why would you use a sort of a lockstep, everybody do the same thing, to track missiles that weren't doing the same thing? I don't know. But anyway, that's, that was the theory. Um, and it was actually delivered to Huntsville in 76. Uh, the other one was the Burroughs uh, Scientific Processor, which was really the, the son of ILIAC, sort of a commercial ILIAC. Uh, the head architect of that was a guy named Richard Stokes. Uh, and they only sold one machine, the Marathon Oil Company in Denver. Um, and I remember very well uh, at uh, the International Conference on Parallel Processing where Dick Stokes took Dave Cook, Cook off by the lake and told him that the, that the BSP had been, uh, had been torpedoed. It was definitely not the high point of the conference either for Dave or for Dick. But, uh, but it was an interesting machine, and a lot of the same Illinois guys that worked on the LIAC-4 worked on the BSP. And it was a, it was a nice machine. Uh, it, it, had, it had a major problem, and that is the company that was building it. Just as, just as the uh, ETA-10 was inflicted with controlled data, uh, the BSP uh, was inflicted with Burroughs, who had this thing called Burroughs Current Mode Logic that was being developed in San Diego. San Diego, are you awake up there? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so there was, so this BCML Burroughs Current Mode Logic was meant to be the logic out of which the BSP was designed. And the BSP was ready to be implemented, and BCML was late, and then it was another year late, and then it was another year late, and then it was another year late, and finally Dick decided he was going to implement BSP in Echo, Motorola stuff, standard stuff. By then it was too late. He could have been to market three years earlier if Burroughs had insisted that the BSP had to drag BCML out of, uh, out of Rancho Bernardo, which is where it was going on, I believe. Anyway, so it was pulled, pulled the plug in 1980. But it was a nice machine and quite programmable, as you might expect from a bunch of Illinois and Burroughs people. Yeah? Are these stack-based machines? Uh, s yes and no. The scalar unit uh, of the BSP was was Burroughs-like and stack-based, but the vectors were not <laughs> were not stackified, or or the or the the, the, the SMD rather was not a stack thing uh, at all. So it was a, it was a kind of a hybrid in that sense. I mean, there wasn't you know you didn't have a, a suite of ve uh, vector elements on the stack <laughs> that you would pop and do an inner product with stuff in the vector accumulator, and then somehow. You know, put the result. It didn't work that way. That would have been a lot of traffic. Now there was a machine that did work that way, but that well, the ETA 10 was, well, all right. <laughs> um, we even got all the way down to one bit. Somebody made the observation 
probably based on Solomon, which I think was a one-bit machine. I'm not sure about that, but I think it was. But at any rate, uh, there was this guy named, named uh, Ken Batcher, who was a student of Slotnick's at Illinois. He got his Ph.D. there. And he had this idea that, uh, you know, you could build a one-bit wide machine and sort of get, get, uh, get, get stuff going sort of bit serial on these things. You could have a lot more processing elements. You could have thousands of processing elements, each one bit wide, and have variable precision arithmetic because you were sort of in control of the, of the, of the, of the length of things because you're doing things bit serialized. So it's a sort of a cool idea. Uh, they were very cheap to implement, and when it got down so you could put it all on a chip, as in the case of this guy, the Goodyear MPP, uh, they, were, they were really, really uh, uh, sweet to build. Interesting little machines. Uh, the Stern was developed for air traffic control kind of things and, and, and uh, sort of, uh, uh, well, a number of applications other than the one that turned out to be the killer app for these machines, which was image processing. Turns out the variable precision arithmetic and the array nature of the memory and so on made uh, the Steran and the DAP and the MPP just great for processing images and c doing nearest neighbor communications to do deblurring and, and edge detection and all kinds of things. So a very, uh, very uh, interesting application that wasn't intended at all uh, for, for, for the machines. Um, the Goodyear MPP was sort of the last of these. Uh, well, although there was sort of some overlap. In fact, I think the DAP, uh, which wasn't ICL most recently, but I just ran into Stu just the other day, and uh, I think this this machine, this distributed array processor, is still being sold. It's a, I think, as I recall, 64 by 64 one-bit array that could, you know, chunk away. It had row and column highways to communicate, sort of broadcast down rows or columns and things like that. Just the kind of machine that, uh, uh, that Larry Snyder and the ZPL guys would love to target with their software uh, up here at, at Washington. So, uh, so these machines uh, were uh, sort of deployed in the 80s, mid-80s, and, and were kind of uh, the last pure SIMD machines that I know of. There was a much better idea on the horizon. Uh, well, except for this machine. This was a. Uh, this is actually two different architectures, or maybe three, but two main themes, and that's the connection machine. The connection machine uh, was conceived by Danny Hillis for his PhD thesis at MIT, based on a sort of the connectionist idea of AI that what we really needed for machines to be intelligent was to have them have all the neurons of the machine connected up to each other really, really well. So you could let them reinforce each other. This is sort of in line with uh, what contemporary uh, physiological theory of the brain is anyway. Uh, so the idea is it's all about wires. It's all about connecting things. And that's why it was called a connection machine. And uh, in order to make the connections affordable and get the maximum number of processors and connections and so on, uh, they built these things one bit wide. So the CM1 was basically a hypercube connected one bit array. So instead of being a plain connection, it was a, a high dimensional interconnect. And then uh, after that, they added some sort of some mesh on top of it. So it was a combination of hypercube interconnect and na nearest neighbor interconnect in two dimensions. Uh, and in the CM2, they added uh, some YTEC chips that would do 32-bit 30, floating point and so on. So 
these were amazing machines. Uh, they were very easy to program because the a fair amount of attention was paid to the high-level language uh, implementations on this machine. There was a, a dialect of Lisp, for example, called Star Lisp, uh, which introduced a notion called Zectors, uh, uh, which were sort of vectors with generalized domains, uh, essentially not just integers, uh, but other things, uh, very much like hashes in Python or, or, or something, right? Except they could go fast. It was very interesting, interesting stuff. Well, did Feynman do anything but front for them? What? Richard Feynman was always associated with these guys. He wore t-shirts for them and there were, there were a lot did of, he do anything substantive? I don't know if Feynman did anything substantive. I think he was, I think he sort of liked the, the way the machine looked. A lot of us did. I mean, this was a very compelling computer for a lot of us, you know, both within and without the field. Los Alamos bought these things. They, they weren't doing AI. They were trying to do, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, for example, there was a guy who was doing, you know, ir very irregular adaptive general circulation model weather on, on the globe. A guy named uh, Trees, uh, Harold Trees, uh, who's now in Idaho, I think, somewhere. But, or, or maybe he's at Pacific Northwest National Lab, but he's somewhere out, out east of where we are here in Washington. And, uh, but he did this, 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 uh, Essentially, this free Lagrange uh, simulation of general circulation model weather using the CM2. Just a piece of work. This is a very inspiring machine to lots of people. It didn't hurt either that Thinking Machine's idea of how to market was get a whole bunch of scientists, employ them, and then put them at customer sites to help the customers solve problems on the machine. It was very intelligent marketing because this machine was pretty unusual. It wasn't like the supercomputers they'd seen before. So the idea was to. Uh, to do that, and uh, so they were they were quite successful with this. I mean, this is a comment from Los Alamos or from San Diego. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it didn't do you a lot of good. How many how many physicists did you have here helping you program it? Exactly. Sorry, San Diego. Uh, I read a little bit about Richard Feynman's uh, interactions with thinking machines, and there is a kind of a cute story that he knew he knew uh, Danny through his son Carl because they, okay. they were at MIT at the same time. Yeah. And basically, uh, they had employed him for a while. And uh, one of the things they asked him to do was to figure out how to route things within, it might have been the CM2. It may have been the CM5. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. But one of the things that they, that they said is when, they, when he finally was done, he had presented the solution as a set of differential equations. Uh, which is something that all of these like computer hardware designers are really not entirely sure of how they're going to. Uh, they didn't really understand it, but it did end up working. So yeah, uh, why well, do some substantive research? According to Danny, who wrote a, an, an article about it um, in in a, a journal or a magazine somewhere. Yeah, my understanding was that the the CM1 actually used hot potato routing, which is something that. Paul Barham invented for the internet years ago, and I was the first to use in a computer interconnection network. And Jack Schwartz told me that uh, that there was something very familiar about the CM1 that he couldn't tell me about, but that I would be amused when I found out about it. And um, so this is the idea of, of not buffering in the network, but actually forwarding things immediately uh, out to outputs. And and uh, and there was a, there, yeah, there was a lot of creativity in this machine. It was a very very interesting machine. Uh, one last thing is uh, yeah. I, I wor work at Los Alamos with a number of people from the Advanced Computing Lab, and right. uh, 
Many of them have told me that this was the last computer that Los Alamos had, or the CM series, maybe the CM5, if anything, that actually kind of inspired them and they thought was actually a really cool computer. That was from numerous people, I guess. Right. The ACL bought a pretty good-sized CM200, as I recall, maybe a CM2 before that, but they had that machine available for the physicists at the lab, and, yeah, it was very well thought of. And, in fact, it was that machine that Therese was doing this free Lagrange on. There were lots of other applications as well. The CM5 was not this kind of architecture at all. It was a MIMD machine built out of off-the-shelf microprocessors with a very different interconnection network and a totally different programming model. And a lot of us were sad to see that happen. Well, look, it's 8.12 or something. Why don't we take a break here, because I think the next topic is vector pipelining, and that's another kettle of fish. Great. Okay, 10-minute break. All right, guys? Great. So somebody noticed that you didn't have to do these SIMD concepts in space by having a whole lot of processors and a whole lot of memories and laying them down side by side and letting them all work together. You could do them in time very much the way the 7600 did them in time by pipeline. That is, you have this very long list of operations you want to do, a whole bunch of adds or multiplies or something. You could just sort of feed them all through one functional unit and just keep adding the stuff that comes in and generate stuff that goes out. So you could build a pipeline that would do the computation. One of the early people to realize this was Harvey Cragen at Texas Instruments. And, in fact, the target for the ASC was Fortran loops. They actually had Fortran in mind in designing this machine. And they thought that pipelining was a better fit than a SIMD array because, essentially, you didn't have to worry so much about strip mining it or essentially aligning the size of the problem to the size of the array. One of the nice things about a pipeline in time is it's sort of any length you want to make it, depending on how you feed it. Memory-to-memory vector pipeline architectures, like the ETA-10 we referred to earlier, or like the STAR-100, which will come up in a little bit, essentially had their vectors in memory and could make them any length they wanted. And so this was a sort of a nice thing. And one of the other things that Texas Instruments did right was that they worked on a Fortran compiler at the same time they started working on the machine. And by the time the machine came out with its Fortran compiler, they had a really, really nice system. The Fortran compiler for the ASC was very difficult for anybody else to match when the ASC became obsolete. It was that good. Very, very high-quality software. There were several systems shipped. An early one, a four-pipe system, was shipped to the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in Princeton, New Jersey. But there were others. There was one at Huntsville and a rather famous one shipped to Jay Boris at the Naval Research Laboratory in Anacostia. And it lived there for a long time and so on. There was also a fair amount of internal use of this machine by Texas Instruments to do seismic processing. I didn't know TI was in the oil business. I think they just had friends in Dallas that wanted to use these machines. One of the most amusing things I ever saw on a supercomputer was mounted on top of pipe zero of the TIASC at GFDL. The guy who ran the shop there proudly pointed to this little Esterline strip chart recorder sitting on top of pipe zero, perched up there. It had a little ribbon of paper coming out of it. 
and it was connected to a digital to analog converter that was attached to the vector length register on, uh, on, on, uh, on pipe zero of that machine. So the longer the vector was, the more the needle moved on the strip chart recorder. And what they would do when they started a run that wanted this facility, they would turn on the strip chart recorder, do the computation, and then supply the tape to the, to the user along with the printout. So the user could look at the thing and said, oh, I see in phase one we're doing great, but in phase two, this should have vectorized and didn't, and so on. So it was essentially a, a very cool uh, sort of graphic performance tool uh, that, uh, that they had. I thought it was, thought it was, thought it was cute. Um, another very infamous machine in history, besides the ETA-10 and the ILIAC-4, was another control data product called the STAR-100. Seems like control data had a knack for these things, I don't know. But the STAR-100 was, uh, was uh, interesting. Uh, Sid Fernbach at Livermore uh, talked to control data about what to do beyond the 7600, and they had this, there was this language called APL, uh, which had sort of arrays and vectors in it. And some guys at Control Data thought it would be really cool to build a machine that was really good at that kind of thing. And uh, it occurred to them that they could uh, actually get a fair amount of performance out of such a thing. And uh, Jim Thornton, who knew all about pipelining from the 7600, uh, started to work on this machine. And in fact, it was competitive with what Seymour Cray was doing, which was called the 8600. Which was sort of a, a, a sort of a, a, an enhanced 7600 in a way, sort of more of the same. And the Star was quite a different kind of machine. Um, so anyway, upshot was that uh, uh, Control Data got a contract to deliver one each Star 100 to Livermore and another one to Los Alamos. And uh, so I did that. And they, they sort of calibrated the machine with these Livermore loops that I referred to earlier. And the Star 100 really looked great on the Livermore loops. And it looked like it could really, really, it needed pretty long loops. I mean, it needed, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of iterations of these loops to actually look good. But it did look good. They said, well, you know, this looks like a pretty serious machine. So anyway, so the Star 100 arrived and they started to program it. And uh, its software wasn't great, but it was usable. And they discovered that the vectors ran really well. This pipeline sort of style of computation seemed to work just fine. But just the ordinary programs, the scalar part of the program, if, you, if I can call it that, that's what most people call it, uh, was pretty slow. There was a, a big ratio of performance between vector and, and, and scalar computation. Uh, I don't remember how big it was, but it was less than 100, but greater than 10. It was a big number. Um, and uh, the result was a very highly limited applicability of the machine. It turns out that the whole computation may not be parallel. Maybe only part of it is parallel. And the part that's not parallel is a problem. Uh, a little divergence on this subject. Uh, Gene Ambell here. Uh, was seeing all this vector stuff go down, and he said, you know, there's something wrong with this, because uh, if you have, let's say, work W1 done it, this isn't exactly what he said, but this is, you know, a way to explain it to people, even people who aren't computer geeks. If you have work W1 done at speed S1, and don't even think computer here, you can think anything you like, uh, you know, a worker in an office uh, doing a kind of, of thing. Uh, 
W1 at speed S1 and W2 at speed S2, then the average speed is not S1 plus S2 over 2 at all, or even a weighted sum like W1 times S1 or anything like that. Instead, what you have to do is compute the total time. Now the time, if you're doing work W1 at speed S1, the time to do that is W1 divided by S1, right? If I divide amount of work by work per unit time, I get time. That's what I want. And W2 over S2 is similarly the time required for the second stuff. And if I add those two together, like here, okay, that's the total time. And now if I divide the total time into the total work, that's the average rate. That's or that's the, you know, the the effective rate of the combination. That's not the same as, you know, the naive thing, right? W1 times S1 plus W2 times S2 over W1 plus W2. Quite different. So here's an example. If I have 90% of the work in number one and 10% of the work in number two, and number one has this tremendous speed thing, 100 W's per second, <laughs> whatever that is, and S2 is kind of slow, right? Then in spite of this 100 number, all you get is nine out of the whole deal. Okay, so even if you have 90% of your work run in fast mode, you only get a speed up of nine if slow mode is 100 times slower than fast mode. So this is Amdahl's law, all these variations on this thing. And Amdahl's law is what bit them on the star 100, yeah. So, so examples are you have fork join synchronization, okay, in which you have a sequential thread, and then you distribute something across 100 processors. That's how you get your 100 in that previous example. Right. And then you come back together again, okay? If the amount of time you spend joined is equal to the amount of time that each of those 100 forks independently spends, then your speed up is only going to be a factor of two. Yeah, half your time will be spent in that serial section. Right, okay. Alternatively, vectors, okay? You have a vector computation that goes right. like blazes, but you have right. a sequential computation right. that's right. in a loop with the vector. Right, right, right. Or driving home from Microsoft, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, figure, I figure I'd like to average 60, 60 miles an hour for the trip, you know? But uh, I drive half the way at only 30 miles an hour average. How fast do I have to go in the remainder to get home? Fast enough to draw attention. Infinitely fast, right? My car can do it sometimes. I have a, you know, but I don't like speeding tickets, and besides which, I probably couldn't do it on 520. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so that's Amdahl's law. So um, it was it was a bit of a turkey. Uh, so Los Alamos backed out and got a Cray one instead. And Sid Fernbach wind up being stuck with two star hunters. Some claim that's why he got fired. Is because he got not one but two of this machine. Uh, so anyway, that's the story of the Star Hunter. That's why Neil Lincoln wants to write a book about it. All right. So there's Amdahl's law, complete with reference. So let's get to the Cray One. The Cray One, probably the most famous supercomputer ever built uh, by the most famous supercomputer builder ever born, and uh, it was it was it was it was uh, it deserving of that <laughs> reputation. There was no contract for the Cray-1, like everything else Seymour did, he sort of built it. Now, he had a brand new company, so he had $5 million to build it with. So he built it for $5 million and sold it for seven, which was a pretty good deal for Serial 1, I would say. The R&D expense was quite modest. Um, 
the way he sold it to Los Alamos was really weird. He gave him a free one-year trial. Now, you can't do this anymore. In fact, there was a law passed against it. I think IBM caused Anyway, however this law appeared, uh, uh, there was a law against giving the government anything like a supercomputer. But at the time, it was legal. Uh, and so he gave them a one-year free trial. And then after the free trial was over, they still didn't have a budget to buy Cray One. So, but they had expense money at Los Alamos. So they got this, this, this oil person from eastern New Mexico to uh, actually underwrite, actually buy the lease paper. Uh, so essentially Los Alamos had a lease with this, 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 this guy from southern New Mexico who actually paid Cray for the machine. Um, so it had an interesting provenance. Um, there was no software ship with the machine to speak of, no operating system, no compiler. Los Alamos sort of hacked the 7600 compiler to make it work for the Cray 1, and they, the vectors, vector feature on it was kind of speculative to start with, so they didn't do much with it. There were, you could sort of get at it by a call to start with. Uh, there was also no operating system, so essentially Los Alamos, you know, wrote some of the early operating system for the... Uh, for the Cray-1. Um, it was a, a winner from the get-go because it was twice as fast as the 7600 without any vectors, which is pretty remarkable. And then when the vectors woke up and people like Tom Jordan and other people at Los Alamos figured out how to use them really well, Tom Jordan was the guy who invented uh, super vector performance by essentially chaining vectors together, doing a sort of a software pipeline with, with, uh, with vectors. Or, or put another way, you know, putting the CDC 6600 trick on top of the Cray-1 trick. Um, and so it was very, very, uh, very, uh, very fast machine at that point. Um, so, uh, and, and people just loved it. I mean, it's just, just a tremendous machine. What year did that come up? Uh, well, it was shipped to Los Alamos in 76. Uh, I guess I didn't get that on this slide. And uh, I think development started 72 or 1 or something. Uh, Seymour just sort of ditched the 8600 and started working on this. And convinced uh, this guy, uh, John Rowagon, with the Harvard Business School credentials to uh, be a CEO. And that was another master stroke. They got along very, very well and, and complemented each other quite well over the years they worked together. So did Los Alamos give that software to Cray after they had developed it, the operating system? And uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, they could have, but it w really wasn't uh, theirs to give away because it was controlled data software, right? Uh, and, you know, I don't know if that would have, I mean, I don't know if controlled data made us think about that or not or could have. But uh, it turns out uh, there was a guy named uh, Nelson, which I don't remember his first name, who was a, a tremendous, uh, he wrote the Cray compiler and assembler and uh, did very well, thank you. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite up to today's uh, vector compiler standard, but it was, it was a tremendous job. And uh, later he figured out uh, how to automatically vectorize lots of loops. In fact, as time passed, there was more and more discovery of how to automatically vectorize loops. And they'd put these features into the compiler, not just Cray, but other companies building vector machines. And by so doing, they would train the programmers how to write in vector style. So essentially, Fortran got subsetted into vectorizable Fortran. Don't put if statements in your loops. Don't put function calls in your loops. 
don't do anything that's going to mess up the ability to do dependence analysis and, and, and packaging of these things. Originally, you had to start off with loops that only had a single statement in them. Later, compilers learned how to do loop distribution and, and even you know, chaining with, with bigger loop bodies, and so it was possible to write big loop bodies with, you know, for vector machines. So there was a tremendous amount of synergy between the users and the compiler developers for these, for these vector machines, and they sort of invented a, a vector language in a way. It was still Fortran. It was still standard conforming Fortran whatever it was, 77 eventually, not in these days. Uh, and uh, and uh, that proved to be a very successful way to pr program machines of this kind. Hollerith was already giving people a year's first trial on his machine. Do you know any more about why Los Alamos couldn't do it up front, or were they uncertain that it would work at all? Is there a story as to why it was a one-year free contract? Well, well remember, remember I said they had this contract to get a star. Which, which was with control data, and I don't think they could get out of that. And given, and given the way DOE budgets work, or Atomic Energy Commission budgets at the time, it would have been hard to, you know, to say, wait a minute, here's this thing, why don't we find the money somehow? So I think that had a lot to do with it. The machine was a bit unproven, too, although Seymour had never led, it, led any of these folks astray before. But I think the main problem was that they backed out of the star deal. Okay. But we should ask Bill Busby or Bobby <coughs> Wald or Jack Worlton that question. I was at a, a retrospective on the first delivery of the Cray One last month, I think it was, down at the down at the History Museum, and that would have been a good question to ask one of those guys at the time. Here's a picture of the Cray One, the famous love seat. Uh, <laughs> what was Those were the love seat? seats, right? Hmm? Those were cheetah seats. Heated seats. Heated, heated seats. seats. Yes, they were heated seats. That's right. Uh, there, were, there were power supplies under there that were linear power supplies. In fact, they weren't even regulated. The Cray-1 was designed to consume constant current at all times. Uh, and so it was just an LC filter. In fact, it was just an L filter because the capacitance was provided by the circuitry. Uh, and and, and the s bypass capacitors on the circuit boards. And so it was just sort of a... a, a, a what was called a 12-phase rectifier it ran on 400, mega, 400 hertz MG sets, drove this thing. Three-phase, 400 hertz. So you had 400 hertz with all three phases. So the thing you got out was just this, you know, this very fine 400 uh, times 12 ripple on top, 400 times 6, I guess, uh, uh, ripple frequency. And then that was pretty easy to filter out, and it was constant current. So that was what was under the seats. The other thing that was under the seats early when the machine shipped was a case of Leinen Kugel's beer, uh, which was traditionally shipped with every every cray for years and years and years. Uh, uh, Leinen Kugel's made it is made in Chippewa Falls. It's the local uh, it's the local microbrewery from back before they had microbreweries. Iron City is yeah is is a different town. What was the reliability of the Cray One? The Cray One, the original Cray One, Serial One, was pretty bad, and the reason was so it had emitter coupled logic memory. It has semiconductor memory, one k by one parts, so a, a kilobit per chip, uh, in little flat pack packages like this, and no error correction or even detection. It said that Seymour said parity is for farmers. 
Uh, they don't even know stinking parody. Uh, and it turned out that he was wrong. <laughs> one, of the, one of the few occasions uh, he really did need parody. And so Serial 2 sort of didn't exist. And Serial 3 on, Serial 3 shipped to NCAR, Serial 3 on had parody in it. Uh, that didn't approve the reliability of the machine, but it was an indication that there was something uh, something you needed to pay attention to in having to do with the reliability of, of the memory system in particular. But I think the machine for a supercomputer was kind of reasonably reliable, you know, sort of like weak kind of reliability as opposed to day or hour or minute uh, MTBF. Well, so there's another kind of SIMD that we don't normally call SIMD, and that's VLIW, um, which stands for a very long instruction word. Actually, very long instruction word is a coinage of Josh Fisher's, but the original long instruction sort of idea came from a famous guy named Glenn Culler, uh, who did a lot of very interesting things, um, including invent a sort of a uh, one of the first highly interactive uh, problem-solving envir environments for science, but also was a father of a very famous machine called the AP120B and its IBM compatible or IBM hooked to uh, compatriot called the AP190L. And the father of a famous Berkeley faculty member. And the father of a famous Berkeley faculty member who had me write a nice letter for the for the Seymour Cray Award that Glenn won uh, three years ago, and so on. Anyway. Uh, so uh, this was a, an amazing machine in its own right. It was uh, the idea was, all right, all right, quit messing around, okay? You got a bunch of functional units, just tell them what to do, right? Yeah, I mean, if the 6600 were built this way, the way it would look is as follows: it would have a 309-bit ins wide instruction, which would have all 10 function units called out inside there. You know, all right, first multiplier, do this. Second multiplier, do this. First adder, do this. Second adder, do this. Address adder, do that. So on. And we just sort of spell it all out. And the next clock, you do something different. Now, tremendous register I.O. required to do that, right? So these machines had segmented register sets. They, they didn't have one unified place to put the results of all the functions. Instead, they had to be split up into chunks and banks, and there were constraints and all kinds of things. Nevertheless, very, very fast machines. and. Uh, uh, very useful machines. Uh, the original killer app for the AP120B was GE CAT scanners. Every GE CAT scanner had a floating point systems box in it. Uh, and then other people took that. Star took the business away from floating point. And then GE decided to build their own VLIW machines to do the, the CAT scan stuff. Uh, they also were widely used in seismic processing. Uh, Ken Wilson, the Nobel laureate for, uh, for the Normalization Group, a rather famous physicist, was the author of the first high-performance code generator for the AP190L, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, and he did it because he wanted to do QCD. He wanted to do lattice gauge theory on the machine, and uh, he just didn't want to do it by hand in assembly language, so he actually wrote a code generator for this machine. Uh, later, Floating Point did very well with it. The real champ of code generation for these machines, though, was uh, were uh, Josh Fisher and Bob Rao, who sort of came along at more or less the same time. And Josh especially did a lot of work on an idea called trace scheduling, where you know how, how a computer program sort of branches. It might go here, it might go there. But Josh said is, well, let's, uh, let's see what the highest probability thing is and compile as though the other one weren't there. 
And then if it turns out we branch, we'll just fix things up. You know, if I do the wrong thing over here for this direction, I'll just fix things up if I go this way. I'll undo the stuff that I did on the path that turned out to be wrong. And that way I can optimize for the high probability path and really maybe get a lot more stuff going on, a lot more concurrency. And this idea, of course, is very important today. We need to have hardware, trace cache hardware that carries the idea into hardware. So pretty important. A contemporary of uh, Josh's is Bob Rao, who founded a company called Sidrome and built a, a very similar machine called the Sidra 5. Each of the machines had seven fields in a 256-bit instruction. Coincidence? Hmm. Don't know. Anyway, neither one of these machines was really a supercomputer in a sense, but they were, uh, they were interesting enough to bring out here, I guess, as, as sort of another kind of SIMD-like you know, uh, uh, machine. Except here, different instructions, not the same, but quite synchronous. Question? Yeah. Uh, did the development of those machines kind of start with the compiler rather than the hardware because you had to put a lot of onus on the compiler to be able to exploit this? Yes, yes, in fact. And, and the, main, the main thrust at Yale with Josh's people was this trace scheduling idea, the program dependence graph kind of representation that enabled that, that got fleshed out by compiler people after that at IBM and elsewhere. Uh, the main thrust at Sidrome was also in software, but it was more software pipelining, modular scheduling, all that stuff got invented there. Uh, so, so yeah, there was a tremendous software emphasis. In fact, you might be amused by an early paper on the multi-flow, multi which was a, a smart compiler for a dumb machine. And uh, it really was. The machine was just sort of bare-bones hardware, and all the smarts was, was in the compiler. So these were very much compiler-centric companies. Thanks for bringing that out. So here is what most people think is the world's most beautiful machine, the famous Cray-2. There were a whole bunch of machines called Cray something or other. Here's a list. Uh, some of them were designed by Seymour. Some of them were designed by Steve Chen, like the XMP and YMP. Some of them were designed by other people, like Tony Vaca, the T90. He was also the ETN, ETA-10 guy, or Steve Scott, the X1. Uh, so a whole cast of characters. Uh, Notice some of them have dashes and others not. Interesting. The Seymour machines had dashes, the others didn't. Or uh, that is, Cray dash as opposed to Cray something dash. It was kind of an interesting, interesting thing. You can tell a Seymour machine that way if you're really in the know. Um, and the number of processors kept climbing. So these are not <coughs> vector pipeline machines quite. They're vector pipeline processors, but they're really the first of the MIMD machines, the first of the multiple instruction stream, multiple data stream machines that I talked about before. In fact, these are hybrids. There's kind of two kinds of parallelism. There's the parallelism in the vectors, and then there's the parallelism because there's multiple processors, right? And these compete with each other. In fact, in the early days, uh, nobody really knew what to do with those, all those processors. The first guy, guys I knew about who knew what to do was ECMWF, the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, who actually had an XMP2, and they put the northern hemisphere on one processor and the southern on the other. <laughs> and that worked really well. But it was not so easy, and there were all sorts of, of interesting things invented to try to make these usable, things with names like microtasking and so on. Autotasking. Uh, these were all sort of things that got the operating system a little too involved sometimes. So the granularity was very coarse. Things would sometimes get swapped out when the other half was still running. All kinds of horrible things 
uh, that you didn't want to talk about. And that, those later got solved, and so by the time you got to a machine like the X1, for example, it's a very large-scale machine, uh, it was quite capable of running a highly parallel app with lots of concurrent activities, each one of which had vectors in it. Uh, but there was a lot of learning going on here. All these machines except the X1 are uniform memory access machines. So. Yeah? On the NUMA machines, what do they do about the instruction stream? Typically, the program is copied. Uh, I've known occasional machines would just rely on the cache to hold the, uh, the instruction cache to hold the copies, and you fetch them from wherever. But almost all of them don't want to really do that, and so they, they just copy the text. Now, it's really interesting when you put a breakpoint in, because you've got to do it everywhere, right? So, but that's, that's how that's done, yeah, normally. What was the big change between the T90 and the X1? It's like 8,000 processes. Huge difference. <laughs> Huge. The T90 and the X1 are miles apart implementation-wise and architecturally. Uh, yeah, the X1 is a, is a NUMA system, not a CC NUMA system, if you know what that is. It's a different kind of NUMA. Uh, maybe we'll get to that if, you know, time permits. And uh, it's, uh, so it's, it, it's more like a T3E, if you know what that is but it has vector processors. So it's vector processors uh, and memory where local memory is easier to get to than remote memory. The T90 is flat memory, very hot, very compact, very expensive, and somewhat unreliable. Uh, largely because, well, largely because uh, some managers at Cray decided that they didn't need to keep buying circuits from the same place they were before and made a decision. sort of. So the machine you know, was, had bad parts in it so, sometimes. Yeah. How, how do you deal with, oh, sorry. How do you deal with shared memory issues with a, comp, uh, with a computer like the Cray X1? Well, so one of the interesting things about concurrency, about parallelism, is that it can be used to tolerate latency. What does that mean? It means that instead of waiting for something to come back from memory, you can do something else while you're waiting. Imagine you're loading a pretty good sized vector out of memory. What that means is you're sending a stream of addresses into the memory system and back come all the values you wanted to load. Well, so you're able to issue more requests to memory while you're waiting for those to come back. And in fact, maybe you can do the next vector and the next vector and the next vector and have a whole flock of stuff in the memory with a lot of stuff coming back. Now, there's a little hitch I'll get to in a minute, but in terms of how long it takes to get to memory that's a long way away in this non-uniform memory access machine, it's not so bad because you have these, this concurrency supplied by vector instructions that, that as we say, tolerate that latency, that, that give, you, give you work to do even though you, you know, I mean, even though you have a lot of things that aren't finished yet, I guess, right? That's the whole point of parallelism, is to be able to do things that aren't finished at the same time, kind of, instead of finishing everything before you start the next. And so this is sort of parallelism in space instead of in time. Just as pipelining is operations in time, so memory latency tolerance is memory loads and stores in time, uh, in, uh, using concurrency on a pipeline that goes clear through the network and back. There's only one drawback to all this, and that is you've got to have bandwidth. If you're going to have all those memory references in flight, it doesn't do you any good if you have a soda straw that it, you're actually feeding. In fact, you won't actually have those things in flight. They'll be buffered at one end or the other because 
you, you can't get this stuff through. So, so you, you need a machine, you need a supercomputer kind of machine like the X1 with a tremendous amount of memory bandwidth and non-uniform access, and then you can keep it busy with, with vectors. So that's, that's the concept uh, that allows you to deal with that many processors and still have shared memory at all. It's not uniform, and the main reason it's not uniform, maybe the only reason it's not uniform, is bandwidth. It's not because memory is a, long, a lot of clocks away or a long time away. It's because you can't, you can't deliver the bandwidth from all of those memories across the bisection of the machine. A Cray-X1 would fill four of the rooms I'm sitting in here. And the interconnection network to hook everything up to everything else with the full bandwidth would arguably be about, well, let's see, it'd be about uh, eight floors or so. I mean, more than two floors and, and less than 100. Okay, so call it eight floors worth of wire just to interconnect something at the bandwidth required using wire now, not using fiber. Fiber, you could do it easily, but with wire, uh, it's the wire bundle is tremendous. I have a picture later that shows you how bad it can get. Any more questions? Yeah, sorry. I believe uh, Cray 3 had uh, gallium arsenide circuits. That's right. Cray 3 was a gallium arsenide machine. It, uh, Seymour had gone to Colorado Springs and he went to Gigabit Logic and lured away a guy named Bryant Welch, who was the world's expert at Rockwell and, uh, and, and then later at Gigabit on building gallium arsenide logic. And so Seymour took Bryant and a whole bunch of people out of Gigabit moved into Colorado Springs and went to work doing gallium arsenide for the Cray 3. So it was a pretty early gallium arsenide machine. It was more or less contemporary with the gallium arsenide machine that I did. So. And <coughs> with similar results. <laughs> Other questions? How was the performance of a scalar application on this machine? On which machine? Cray uh, <laughs> X1. Oh, X1, X1 scalar performance is, uh, I don't know, it's probably, just trying to think, it's probably, I think it's about the same as the T90, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's not, it's not as fast as a microprocessor, an Intel or AMD microprocessor would be with the same clock, if that's what you mean. It didn't have as much engineering put into uh, ILP as you find at even AMD or, or Intel or IBM. So it probably lost a factor of four or so over those kinds of machines on the scalar side. On the other end, on the, vec the vector side, it was tremendously faster than any of those. What's the speed advantage of gallium arsenide over contemporary silicon back then? At the time of the Cray 3, I'd say the advantage was five times over CMOS, maybe. Uh, and as time passed, that narrowed. I mean, it became two or maybe less. In fact, today it may be the other way around. I, you know, process technology has not moved in gallium arsenide as, as it has in, in, in silicon because there's not so much investment in it. So it's a kind of an unfair com comparison. The mobility is higher, so gallium arsenide should have an intrinsic advantage if you can process it. Uh, as deeply into submicron as, as as you can CMOS or other technologies. Or unfortunately, down to a half hour. Yeah. So I believe yeah. that Cray developed in-house all this uh, uh, 
Right? Uh, that That's right. The the Cray three was developed. Uh, yeah, there, there there was there was uh, the 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 whole the whole design technology of the Cray three was developed by Cray Computer Corporation in Colorado Springs for the machine, including you know everything, transistors up, transistors, logic circuits, packaging, everything was developed by Cray and his colleagues at. Uh, <coughs> Computer. Any particular reason why they don't continue using this uh, or developing this uh, technology? Uh, well, life? as I said before, there's not there's not a, a tremendous advantage of that kind of gallium arsenide over over a CMOS at the moment, and, and there's certainly not the market to drive that technology to the same point. Uh, we've talked about things like uh, heterojunction bipolar transistors built out of 3,5 indium phosphide, as well as as uh, things like gallium arsenide, and those have even more speed advantage from a transistor point of view. But the other problem is, it's not about transistor speed, actually. It's about wires today in, 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 in high-performance circuitry. And gallium arsenide has, actually has some drawbacks against it wire-wise. Uh, silicon dioxide is a much better insulator than some of the things you can build with gas. Uh, so they typically use plastic. Uh, <laughs> To insulate the layers of, of conductor above, above, so it's it's a BT and other things like that. So it's it's not it's not so easy a technology to use. Yeah. yeah I have a similar question. I think at this time, like digital, they were designing their own microprocessor and all. I just saw it trailer from their XT1 is going to have AMD Optron and they're That's right. I'll get to those in a minute if I'm allowed to. Go. I mean, you know, hey, quickly. So there's this multi-threading idea I told you about, the PP. So I did a couple of machines, one called the Denelcor HEP, which I first shipped in 1980, uh, to Los Alamos and NSA and some other people. And scalar machine, no vectors at all, but multi-threaded, and that's the concurrency we use to build shared memory. So it's another use of the latency tolerance idea, but this time the parallelism is the parallelism from lots of threads being multiplexed in a pipeline instead of vectors being multiplexed in a pipeline. Make sense? It's just using different program counters, but you're still feeding a pipeline, and you still have memory references in flight because of it. So Lots question. of them. Yeah. Uh, prior to uh, uh, this, was multi-threading used in CPU? No. The HEP was the first multi-threaded CPU, actually. The peripheral processors of the 6600 and 7600 were the first used in anything. But this was the first time anybody actually built a, the main processor. The other thing is it was out of order, not in order like the barrel. So it's it's more like multi-threaded machines are today rather than those old guys. Um, and actually Cray's building one now called El Dorado. Uh, and there are customers for that, it turns out. And there's a variant that was uh, pioneered here at Washington, actually, called simultaneous multi-threading. The thing Intel calls hyper-threading and so on. And it was first incarnated on the... Alpha EV8, I guess, that didn't actually make it out the door, uh, but there was certainly a big relationship with d digital and SMT, and then Intel picked it up, and IBM, of course, has been doing it for a while. So it's a fairly popular idea. Sun, too. What? I think Sun, too. Oh, and Niagara and, at, from Sun, you bet. Big time. Uh, here's sort of the first CC Newman machine to ship in, uh, and it's, uh, well, not this one, but a predecessor from SGI. Turns out that uh, John Hennessy and a lot of his colleagues and students at Stanford uh, developed an idea for <coughs> using cache coherence to build a shared memory system, 
with non-uniform access uh, by by using the coherence of the cache to uh, sort of automating the the uh, the, uh, the coherence. This was sort of uh, sort of uh, stemmed from an earlier idea pioneered by companies like Sequent, uh, which involved snooping, uh, sort of uh, have the caches talk to each other to find out who has the latest copy when things change. This is a sort of a a more scalable, more large-scale kind of idea that involved uh, a more sophisticated technology I don't really have time to go into, but uh, uh, it was picked up by Forrest Basket uh, at uh, Silicon Graphics, and uh, there were machines built starting with the Origin 2000, then the Origin 3000, and, and the Altics, which are quite recent machines. And these uh, scale up to fairly large sizes. The it says 512 processors here, but I'll direct you to the footnote. Uh, there's a machine called Columbia, which has tw a cluster of 20 uh, of these uh, 512 processor uh, Altix nodes. So it's a rather large machine at 10,000 processors. Um, so there's also this, uh, this, this idea that you don't really need to put the data in memory at all. Just do a shell game and keep it in the cache all the time. It's not your cache, it's my cache. It's somebody's cache. You need some directory to tell you where it is, but otherwise it could just bounce around the machine. And that, so that's what COMA, which stands for Cache Only Memory Architecture. There's no main memory, it's all cache. By the way, all cache is probably a registered trademark of Kendall Square Computer. Uh, and there were a couple of machines. One of them was here, actually. The KSR-1 was here for a while. And there was a KSR-2 over across the mountains at Pacific Northwest National Lab until very recently. With a, according, to the, according to Wikipedia, a mountain of spare parts that they'd gotten from KSR when KSR folded just to keep that machine going. And these, these are very useful and very interesting machines and, 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 and shared memory machines, again, which are relatively uh, easy to program compared to this. Uh, at least in my opinion. So, <laughs> so Chuck Seitz and Jeffrey Fox, a couple of guys at Caltech. Chuck is computer scientist. Jeffrey Fox is a physicist. And they had this idea that, you know, why are we messing around? We could actually take uh, like an Intel 8086 and hook a bunch of them up and let them send messages between each other. Chuck had always been interested in very fine-grained messaging between processors. E even when he was a graduate student, he was interested in that stuff. And when the 8086 came along, he said, well, you know, now we can build this thing. And Jeffrey knew how to use them. So they pioneered the system called the Cosmic Cube, a great name for a computer. It had 64 Intel 8086s, and each one had an 8087, which was where the floating point, <laughs> I guess, still comes from. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and they connected these in a six-dimensional hypercube. You know, two to the six is 64, so that worked out. And... Um, that little architecture dominates supercomputing today. That's the, that's the architecture we have today. Almost to the exclusion of everything else, a few machines like the X1 or the Eldorado or other weird things from Cray, and a few other things. But basically, they all look sort of like the Cosmic Cube. They're faster, they're bigger, they're warmer, they occupy more floor, but they look like that. Uh, yeah. That use like today's floating point DSP processors in a similar Yes, there have been just about everything you can imagine in terms of connecting things. They typically have some sort of general purpose processor in the node, as it's called, the, the, the vertex of the hypercube or, or the mesh more commonly these days. Usually it's a two dimensional mesh now. In fact, sites came around to that point of view very early. 
uh, not even a torus, just a flat mesh with edges uh, is, is, is what Chuck would tell you even today is the right way to build these. So see, and there's two separable issues, right? One is what's the interconnection network? Yep. And the other is, are you using a GPU? Where are you connected? Yeah. yeah. So okay. then, then what people would do is, is put something into that node. Dark Horse has a GP processor and some, and some uh, cell uh, GPUs in it. And you'll see lots of that theme floating around at the average trade show these days. Uh, Burton, I spent the afternoon with Pat Hammerhand, who's a graphics guy from yeah. Stanford, a guy named David Baker, who's a protein folding guy here. And Pat has made a bunch of these energy calculation codes run on GPUs with a factor of 40 speed ups over the yeah. And uh, so what David does is, is typically, uh, he does screensaver, setting at home type calculations for protein folding. But his goal is to let it run on your high end GPU instead of your CPU and get 40 times as much done. Right. And, and it's really good, it's also really good for your, for your nameplate number. I mean, if you have a 100 exaflop computer, you know, people say, wow, in spite of the fact you may have gotten it via somewhat less than highly programmable means. Anyway, never mind all that. Chuck, bless his heart, went out then and transferred the technology of the Cosmic Cube to these three companies. And very aggressively. I remember talking to him back then, and he said it was a horse race about which one would get out the door first. It turns out it was it was Amatech by a little, but not by much. They all sort of came out about the same time, with somewhat different philosophies for each one, and they you know enjoyed uh, varying degrees of of success, I guess. Encube got bought by Larry Ellison, and got diverted to all kinds of things: first databases, then video on demand. I have no idea what Larry's doing with Encube now, but it's something. Uh, Intel sort of went out and then back in and back out of the computer business, and uh, Amatech does other things uh, generally. They're still, still Are you talking about programming models? I uh, could. The idea here is that these computers send messages to each other, and there's a standard way you write those programs uh, for supercomputers using a language called MPI. That's not the same language as the rest of it's used to send messages around. We use things like Windows Communication <laughs> Foundation, things like that. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to send, send messages around, uh, and lots of vehicles by which to do it. Computers have been built on, on top of sockets. They've been built on top of uh, InfiniBand and PCI Express. I mean, just about anything you can use except maybe a couple of cups and a piece of string have been used to connect uh, computers in systems like this. And the programming model, of course, requires you break the problem up into pieces that can be computed that way. So the good news and bad news about MPI is the communication is visible. Communication and synchronization are visible to the programmer. Right? So that's a huge pain in the neck to program, yeah. but it means that you tend to write efficient programs if you can write them at all. Yeah. The, every the, message is visible yeah. to you. Yeah, the reason people like shared memory when they do, some, some people prefer this to shared memory machines. You pay more for a shared memory machine is one reason why that might be true. The other reason is that uh, the, the, the fact is that the communication is exposed and it's easy to reason about. The bad news is that you have to divide the problem up into pieces that have the following properties. The amount of work in each piece is roughly the same, and the amount of memory in each piece is roughly the same, and the pieces don't communicate too much. That has proven to be impossible to automate, aggressively impossible to automate. So it's essentially your responsibility to do that decomposition and then 
the trivial step, write the messages, write the sins and receives necessary to communicate. That's, that is actually quite easy. The hard part is doing the first part. Right so shared up. memory machines support an illusion which they can't really support. And that illusion is that memory access times are uniform and free, more or less. Well, kind of. Well, so that's... So it's, it's a great, easy programming model. That's a little... That's, that's, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I okay. think that's not what shared memory machines do. Uniform shared memory machines Fair support enough. a... what may or may not be a fiction. If they're really uniform and you believe it, then it's not fiction at all. Right. The question is... To what extent can that scale? And as I said before, the problem with scaling that is bandwidth. It's not latency, by the way. It's not time of flight. It is getting all those data moving uh, across the bisection of the machine. And I can tell you more about skin effect after we're done here, uh, about why I think the building is 80% wire and only 20% everything else. Uh, if you tried to build one four times the size of this room. It, 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 there, there's good physics behind this. But NUMA shared memory is a very valuable idea. It's a, it's a worthy competitor to the message passing idea. And, you know, and, and the point is that you can still tolerate the latency and you don't have to be quite so perfect in the way you balance things up. Moreover, you can migrate data and you can migrate code because you, things don't break. They just get slower, but they don't break. They don't fail to work if the data aren't local. Whereas in a message passing distributed memory machine, you can't do a remote reference unless you program it. And in fact, you have typically, uh, you send a message just to another processor that replies. There's a, a more modern technique called single-sided communication where I can actually do a remote load or store, and that starts looking a lot more like NUMA and a lot less like distributed memory, right? Because if I can send a message to some other place and actually pick something up out of that memory without help from the other end, I'm, I might as well call that a load or a store, right? So uh, so anyway, so that's, so there's several kinds of distributed memory. There's sort of two big themes. One is cla the classic MPP. We don't have a better name for it. Um, this is a kind of an endangered species because of the mini-core revolution that's going on right now. But uh, this is what a lot of the really high-end guys like. And this is each, each, each place in this distributed memory machine, let's call it a node for a minute. Each node is one processor and its memory. And so I have a very large number of nodes, one processor each one, and these things send messages to each other. And so there's a lot of systems that have been built this way. The Cray T3D uh, was built this way, and the T3E as well. And the XT3, uh, which is a current product, Intel's machines, both the Touchstone series and the, and the Paragon, which are old machines from the 90s, uh, were built this way. And some of the early IBM machines and the most recent IBM machine, BlueGene, is built this way. So this is, and these are all really big machines, especially things like the T3E, the XT3, and BlueGene. These are the biggest machines we have, uh, with one exception, the... Uh, your sim simulator. Uh, you can see that these machines have some pretty interesting characteristics. Uh, look how the network is placed on this XT3. It's up in the air, sort of, uh, you walk under it. Uh, so it's kind of nice, gets the network up out of the way. Uh, here's here's a, one of the racks of the blue gene. Notice its unusual uh, tilt. Uh, uh, and the reason it has a tilt is because air is flowing up from under the floor in this triangle and down and up into the top.
top through that triangle. So the air sort of does this, right? Up, over, and then up the rest of the way. And that's why it's wider, you know, or more to the left at the top and more to the right at the bottom. And you can put these side by side. And it, it just kind of gives you a sort of strange perspective on life. But it works, <laughs> it works very well. Anyway, that's kind of distributed memory. The other, the other approach to life is clustered. And what cluster says is each node is not a processor. It's a shared memory machine. That is, it's, a, it's, 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 it's in fact normally a, a uniform, an UMA shared memory machine. So I have a distributed memory system built out of a whole lot of little bitty shared memory systems. Right? And uh, so there's lots of examples. Uh, recent IBM product, the Earth Simulator. Uh, the nodes in the Earth Simulator are SX6 nodes, basically. <laughs> so they're big, macho vector processors with shared memory and lots of horsepower. And then they take lots and lots of those and hook them up. <clears throat> and then there's a whole lot of homebrew machines, um, usually built out of Intel or AMD processors, but occasionally something else like, uh, you know, Macs, <laughs> Macintoshes, and things like that. And every government lab has built homebrew machines now. They all do it. And uh, sometimes they're successful with them. And sometimes they want uh, a real company like IBM to integrate something for them. So here's, here's a nice picture. Here's the Earth Simulator from above. You know, very nice looking machine. Huge building this sits in. This is under the floor. Look at that. There's a man. He's not a very short person. He's sort of a normal height person because this floor is about eight feet, no, nine feet deep or something. Three meters, I believe. Uh, and uh, look at all the wire. And the floor is paved with wire. It's everywhere. It's cable everywhere. This is a very high bandwidth distributed memory machine. Uh, if it were a shared memory NUMA machine, uh, this whole thing would be full <laughs> wire, probably. Is that actually fiber? Uh, <laughs> or power? Or I don't think it's fiber. I think maybe. I, I don't remember now. I, I should know. I knew. I knew five years ago. It just fall, fell out of my head. I don't really remember whether it's fiber or not. I don't think so. But I could be wrong about that. Look it up. Somebody tell me before we're done. <laughs> Find out if the Earth Simulator is interconnected with fiber or wire. There's a list called the Top 500 list that keeps track of the fastest 500 machines in the world. Uh, it's updated twice a year. Uh, once at, uh, at the uh, supercomputer conference now held in Dresden, and once at supercomputing held this year in Tampa, Florida, held every, every November. And it's run by uh, Hans Moyer and Jack Nungara and Eric Strohmeyer and some of their friends. And it uses the LINPAC benchmark, which was developed to solve uh, dense linear systems of equations uh, by Jack Nungara and Cleve Muller and some of their friends. Uh, and uh, this benchmark is now uh, sort of the most famous benchmark, replacing the Livermore loops and all that, uh, used to measure computer performance. And it is even more misleading than the Livermore loops were. The Livermore loops were used to procure the star and didn't find that scalar performance problem that it had, this Amdahl's law problem that the star had. Well, here, the trouble is that the interconnection network is basically worth nothing. And everything is about the processor performance. 
and nothing about how well the system is internally connected. And this is an admitted deficiency. Nevertheless, it's the, probably the most valuable historical resource about computers and their characteristics and performance uh, that we have, especially over the last 25 years or so. So I recommend you look at the Top 500 site. Here it is. Um, here's the, the kind of chart you'll find on the site. For example, this is, this is sort of what the what the interconnection network uh, properties are, and I somehow got a, a thing I didn't know I had, um, but maybe I can go back into slideshow mode here somewhere. Anyway, um, so here's a chart. It shows, you know, sort of crossbars, Miranet, Gigabit Ethernet, Cray proprietary interconnect, Quadrix, uh, other kinds of interconnect as a function of time. So how many of the 500 machines had what? as they're interconnected. So all sorts of things like that. that are what what happened in 2003 yeah. or 2002? <laughs> uh, what happened in 2002 or 2003 is pretty clearly that gigabit ethernet was good enough for a lot of people. Well, I mean the dip just before that, when all of a sudden others doubled their share. Well, others, others are these slower interconnects. Remember I said this thing doesn't value interconnect performance. Somebody discovered that Gig E was a pretty cheap thing to use to build these computers. And so everybody built these things. And they populated the top 500 list because they had really good Limpact numbers. And so if you find this tremendous other and Gig E then coming on very strong in here. What actually other was in this notch, I don't know. But it was stuff like that, right? Uh, and uh, you know, and and some of these other things have just fallen away, right? And th that's so. So it, it's interesting as a, as a sort of a an indication of what people are doing uh, to look at some of these facts. A little bit about Japanese systems. I don't have much time, uh, so let me just uh, run these by you. There are three big Japanese computer manufacturers: Fujitsu, NEC, and Hitachi. They've typically tended to build vector supercomputers, and often the fastest ve vector supercomputer is available uh, from, from one of these companies. Fujitsu and NEC have sold quite a bit abroad. Uh, Hitachi, not. Hitachi is like GE or something, right? It's a huge company, and it has a lot of competence, but its main business is not high-performance computing, whereas Fujitsu is the biggest computer manufacturer in, in Japan. Uh, all of these vector machines are very, very high performance, and of course, for several years, the fastest machine in the world was the Earth Simulator, which was based on the NEC SX6. Uh, so, uh, by the way, I once introduced uh, Watanabe-san as follows. I said, some people call Seymour Cray the Watanabe-san of the U.S. So he is sort of the Seymour Cray of Japan, if you like. Uh, there have been some Japanese national projects, just as there have been in the U.S. I'll get to them next. Uh, there were two of them, actually. The one well-known one called the Fifth Generation Project, which was an attempt to build supercomputers for AI and for, for automated reasoning and, uh, and inference, uh, generally, and vision and speech and so on. And MCC was a response to that, and it was pretty well-known and fairly uh, serious project. There was another one less well-known called the Superspeed Project, which was really a combination of Fujitsu, NEC, and Hitachi working on architecture, and Mitsubishi, Oki, and Toshiba working on logic technology and transistors and that sort of thing. And uh, 
it didn't produce a supercomputer, but it did produce a tremendous amount of technology and some architecture, which was later used in, in uh, products by those three computer manufacturers, Fujitsu, NEC, and Hitachi. Uh, partly as a response to the SuperSeed project and partly because it looked like there wasn't enough influx of parallel computing into the government sector. People were too happy with their craze and too happy with not, you know, sort of not very ambitious parallelism. Uh, there was this program that DARPA instituted called the Strategic Computing Program that was intended to uh, sort of jumpstart things. Two things were done. One is a bunch of companies. These five, at least, is all I could remember. I searched in vain for a list. I think it was not well advertised who the list was. And Cray was a late arrival with the T3D, largely because Cray was whining uh, to Congress about favoritism, excluding them and including all these other funky companies that nobody ever heard of. Uh, and so uh, DARPA decided to give Cray some money. Uh, for the T3D, which was, what I think, pretty well spent and uh, led to the T3, which was the most successful MPP ever built, I think. Uh, and then the other thing that happened was that government agencies were encouraged in ways I won't go into to try these systems out and make them look good and adopt them in their work and so on. And so this was, uh, th this was a big help uh, to the industry and uh, arguably to the field. Um, Another big factor here is a thing called the ASCII program. Uh, Bill Clinton decided one day, based on good advice, I guess, that what we should really do is stop underground testing and instead ensure the integrity of our nuclear weapons stop stockpile by using nothing but computer simulation and the results of old tests. And so a guy named Gil Weigand uh, had the idea that uh, maybe we could start a program to sort of encourage the U.S. computer industry to satisfy the needs of this program from a computational point of view by essentially driving stakes in the ground saying, this is how many teraflops I need this year for this many dollars. And so that thing was sold to the Congress and instituted as a program out of the Department of Energy. And it produced uh, these, uh, so far, these uh, seven machines. Uh, notice the three weapons laboratories Sandy, Livermore, and Los Alamos are all represented more or less with equal frequency. And that Livermore tends to favor IBM pretty strongly. Uh, Sandia and Los Alamos are more Catholic in taste. And colors seem to play some key role here. Uh, I don't know what comes after purple, but it'll be something, some color or other, maybe green. I don't know. Anyway. And Q. Uh, well, I, nobody knows why it was called Q exactly, except I guess Compaq sold it. And some wags say it's Q because it's the end of Compaq. Uh, and it was. <laughs> and it was. Uh, not, not in a bad way. Compaq just sort of got acquired by HP. Uh, the reason they thought it was going to be the end of Compaq is because it was just undoable by anybody, including Compaq. But As the press said at the time, two losers don't make a winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> anyway. But 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 it turned out that uh, that uh, that 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 acquisition uh, uh, kind of uh, changed things there as well. So that's kind of the end of my talk. I guess I'd say one more thing, and that is, what next? Uh, parallelism is becoming mainstream. Uh, Intel and AMD and lots of other and Sun, lots of other people are putting lots of processors on a chip, and so 
parallel computing is going to be just sort of everywhere, even in mobile phones, never mind in, 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 in client and, and server machines. And this will change the supercomputer business just as it will change the rest of computing. Uh, parallel algorithms become important. Uh, parallel applications become vital. Parallel languages and compilers to drive that hardware. Everything will have to change in our field. And supercomputing is no exception. And the world's computers become a giant cluster because we have a bunch of shared memory machines connected by the internet. So it's going to be a very exciting field. Yeah, question. So two things. One, uh, the site's from Japan, so there's a bit of a linguistic issue. But the Earth simulator is connected with 83,200 electric cables connecting the equipments. Yeah. Well, that was that was so what I like thought. But I yeah. checked. Actually, I found an IBM paper in English. They okay. say that they are no optical cables whatsoever in your yeah. Earth simulator at all. Yeah, well, that th I just wasn't sure of that. I, see, I mean, I certainly talked to Watanabe and other people at NEC about optical interconnect for their machines and others, and I just didn't know what the Earth simulator had. It would have been a lot more expensive if it had been optical, so maybe that I should have known. Yeah, Ed? Let me just make a comment about the parallels, and this again is what we were talking about. Yeah. For dinner. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fact is the industry is based on people buying new Intel CPUs because Word runs faster on them. Or something and, does, yeah. Let's and therefore you buy a new version of Word and you need the new CPU to run the new version of Word. It's for okay. games. Right, okay. What's happening <laughs> right. now is those individual cores aren't getting faster. Right. right. At the same time, it's not the case that anybody has actually figured out how to make Word run faster on a multiprocessor. Right. Well, so, right. First approximation. Right. So no, right, right, right. So there's right. a very Excel we know how to do. I mean, right. so That's Office right. is not completely excluded. That's but right. Word, yeah. Word is, okay. Right. So, th so the point is that there's a there's a very serious issue for the future of the industry here. There's a discontinuity, yeah. which is sometime in 2004, individual cores stopped getting faster. And Intel, for yeah. a variety of reasons, Intel started putting those transistors into multi-core. Nobody was ready to make single apps run faster on those multi-cores. Yeah. Well, this is a whole other talk. And uh, a talk I entitled "Reinventing Computing," and and why why we've run out of steam on the uniprocessor is not exactly clear. It's the end of ILP and a few other things. Uh, it's an interesting subject, and what we do about it is even more interesting. It's pretty clear we're going to need more nuclear apps, <laughs> and those nuclear apps will have to be parallel, or else computers will be free or 9.95. Or maybe the software will be 995 and the computer's free, but it's going to change the world if that happens. Microsoft will be in big trouble, and Intel and AMD will be in big trouble, and computing will stop growing. Because, as you know from the Church-Turing hypothesis and elementary complexity theory and all that, speed and space are everything. Faster computers are better. Computers with more memory are better. Just They just are because of the universality of things. And so if you stop growing all that, if you stop getting more performance, okay, you shut down the whole business in some sense. The business becomes mature, like automobiles or steel or something. right? And I don't want that. And I don't think, you know, if you're still with me, you don't want it either. So let's, let's not do that. Yeah. Or we will need optimizers which generate code which can parallelize non-explicitly parallel code. Yeah, so that's another thing we talked about at dinner. And there is good news and bad news on that front. And that is that automatic parallelization of 
dusty decks, as they're called in the business. A dusty deck. Imagine, you know, one of these card readers. You're all too young to know what a card reader is, but these are things that you're not, Eric. But you know, but you know, so a dusty deck. You know, this is called the dusty deck problem in supercomputing. By the way, take a dusty deck. You know, dust off the deck and put it into the card reader if you can still find one, and feed it into your automatic parallelizing compiler, and out comes, hey presto, a parallel program that runs on 100 processors real well. And that dream is not achievable with the languages we have. There's two things to do about that. One is change the languages, which is my choice, and don't try to automatically deal with existing stuff. How about managed languages? Well, they managed language managed is an orthogonal property. Managed doesn't mean it's easy to make parallel, except for one little nit. Safety yes. helps alias analysis. And alias analysis helps dependence analysis. Blah blah blah. That's that's a nit. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a twenty percent win. There's a more important thing, which is make the language so the parallelism is manifest, and then the compiler can deal with it. But that's that's part of the challenge. So, so it seems that the architecture world is ready, but the language and compiler people are not ready. Well, the architecture and let alone the software developers. The architecture world isn't ready in the following sense. But we got to wrap. What happened here was Intel canceled the project in 2004 because it wasn't going to achieve the performance they had committed, and it wasn't worth doing. So it's hard to say they're ready. Okay. Yeah. And then say, oh shit, what are we going to do with all these transistors? We'll put two slow processors on well, the fire. Well, well the, other thing is, the other thing is that, that all we're doing now, absent some advice from the architecture community, is just replicating the processors we had before. You just put more of the same instead of doing something different. That's not completely off target or completely ridiculous, but it's certainly not the best thing to do. Architecture's gotten ahead of everybody else. Languages are way behind. I mean, language research, compiler research, architecture research, and operating system research were declared officially dead in 1982, or maybe 1995, but I mean recently, okay? We, I had one fairly important manager at a fairly important government agency say, that's all decided. Intel tells me that's all, we know how to do that. Those aren't research subjects anymore. We don't need any more operating system research or language research or or compiler research or architecture research because Intel has showed us the way. Fifteen years ago, a DARPA director said, you know, we used to do research in shoes, and now we need that to shoe companies. Right, <laughs> right, right. So that's the thing we've got to fight with. But we have to change the industry. It is predicted that in the uh, following five years, we're going to have 120 processors on the machines. Right. Now, we have application. We don't have people to write uh, application well, we, for this. We machine. don't have the language to write it in either. The language, let alone. Threads and locks? Give me a break. <laughs> right. The idea that, you know, 10,000, 25,000 Microsoft programmers are suddenly going to produce multi-threaded applications. Listen, it'll take that many to do one app. <laughs> So, so the only point I was trying to make is there's a big issue for the future of the industry here. It's a revolution. So yes. ZPL yes. language is a step in the right direction? You bet. You bet. ZPL is way better than a lot of other choices. And there's some other things that have evolved out of it. ZPL has been very influential in surprising places, actually. Some von Neumann is broken at this point, right? <laughs> the only trouble with ZPL is it's really chiefly a data parallel language. And we also need control parallelism and, in fact, hybrids of the two. So a lot of the ideas in ZPL apply, though. We should wrap. We got a slide. Yeah, 42. we got to quit. This is the last slide. I mean, I could do another one. No, no, there's a slide for you too. All right, all right. I put my stylus away. Oh yeah.
Yeah, apologies to companies not mentioned. This apologies to companies not mentioned here. I mean, you know, there's been zillions and zillions of companies. But anyway, if your favorite ones here, well, okay. Burton, thank you. You're welcome.